risking a life sentence to expose war crimes and lies. Coming up on Citizens Insight. Welcome to Citizens Insight, the Citizens Party's interview series on matters of national and international importance. Today's interview is as serious as it gets. In just a few weeks, our guest today will be tried effectively in secret in an Australian court, and if convicted, he faces a life sentence. What's more, he's choosing to go through it instead of cutting a deal, because it's the only way to put the system on trial for the crimes and cover-ups that he's exposed. Welcome to Citizens Insight, David McBride. Thank you very much, Robbie. So I've been looking forward to doing this for a long time. I think you and I spoke in April about doing an interview. You've been it's... harassing me, serial harasser. <laughs> um, and, I, and I shout out to my friend Jay for suggesting, for suggesting this in the first place, but we're finally here, it's now October. Yeah. Um, but I heard you're in Melbourne, and I know your trial starts in a few weeks, and I thought, I've got to get in now, get David on the show now. So, so thanks for coming. But I want to express something from my standpoint. I think as Australians, we're all responsible for what you're going through and what you're about to go through, right? Because our country is doing this to you. Um, so I want you to tell your story in uh, detail, right? So we're going to start just all the elements of what people need to know about why this Australian is about to face a life sentence, right, for what you, for what you did. But um, we're going to cover a lot of ground in this interview. We're going to get into some political stuff at the end. I want to, I want to um, foreshadow that with this question. Is it fair to say, from your experience that, you, that you're going to tell us about, that it's changed the way you, looked at, you look at the world, including the big geopolitical issues in the world around China and Russia? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And... Uh I didn't come to it easily. Uh, I'm a, a lawyer, I've got a bit of a science background. I wouldn't change, uh, yeah, I wouldn't flip-flop from ideas, but I've seen, I've, I've pretty much had about 10 years to read a lot of stuff. I'm a reader, I've read a lot of stuff online, critically, as a lawyer might. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm, my views about what is going on geopolitically have changed. It's not necessarily that there are bad countries and good. There are a lot of bad people. It's like the car has been carjacked, uh, as the way I describe it, right? Yeah. Because it's hard to shake people, shake people's views about, you know, to try to say that the US is a bad place or that China's not as bad as, as we think it is. Uh, it's People have very you know, definite views. But if you can say uh, bad people have got control of the wheel and are using uh, using this vehicle um, improperly for their own purposes, maybe people can understand that. It's not so much we, people who've got self-interest uh, and who really should not be uh, you know, controlling things. Yeah. Um, I think I read that once, uh, definition of a... Uh, uh, John Shipton sent it to me actually, um, a book that Ralph Nader had written back oh, in the yeah. 70s and yeah. he, it was a definition of a whistleblower was someone who spoke up uh, for the public good uh, rather than the organisational's interest. Something quite simple mm. uh, like that and um, 
uh, it's the first time I'd seen that. Because at the end of the day, it does come back. And this was what I was quite surprised about, to say, you might be uh, a senior person in the, in the government defence force, but you're meant to be working for Australia. You're meant to be working for the common good. And that may vary in, in, in some ways, but it's pretty clear when you've crossed that line and you're not actually working for the common good. Uh, I imagine that goes to the, the heart of what you believe, but we, we have got people uh, in, in public civic positions who are not working for the good of... Uh, and, and they would probably laugh if you said, you, you know, you understand that you're meant to be working for the, the common yeah. good rather than yourself. I was quite surprised by that. A few things surprised me, uh, um, not only geopolitically, a lot of, one thing that surprised me, and we'll get into why, um, and you would, you probably a bit more cynical, is a lot of people that look like us and talk like us and not like us. Uh, that, and that surprised me. I thought, I, I, I went to a Christian school, my parents were both doctors, uh, I probably had a very sheltered upbringing, but I thought most people in the world were good people. Um, maybe they'd have a bad day. Um, I've gone back to, uh, uh, well, apparently it's one of the ancient uh, Greek um, oracle points, apart from know thyself and uh, yeah. to that own self, one of them is most men are bad. And I would have, I would have rejected that uh, not so long ago, but I've come to the conclusion that that is probably right. Well, I, I'm, I'm not that cynical about that. I, I prefer to think people are good, but um, the system in which we exist means that in terms of the, to me, in terms of the effect most people end up having, especially our political class, um, and my experience with the two major parties, it's, a, it's like the law of the jungle out there, you know, and I don't see much of an actual commitment. I, I see slivers, David, of a, of a personal commitment to the public good, but it's weak and, and it gets drowned out by the party machines and the system. And the, and the way they have to respond to the media, etc. And you and you know, so I, I, I think I get that. Um, but anyway, uh, let, let's go. Let's start telling your story, right? Because yeah. I want it's it's a great story. Let's let's start from the beginning. You were a lawyer in the Australian Army, yep. Um, and you achieved the rank of major, yep. That before you made yourself really famous. But before we talk about that, tell us about your life. How did you get to that point? Um. I, uh, my father was a whistleblower. Um, he was a guy called Dr. William McBride, who uh, is credited with discovering um, the fact that this relatively harmless uh, morning sickness drug, it actually, if taken during certain weeks in pregnancy, caused the, the baby to be born without arms or legs or something serious, and often die. And You're talking about thalidomide? Thalidomide, sorry, yeah, yeah of yeah. course, thalidomide. And, um, uh, and I didn't know, yeah, so he was quite well known. He got some awards overseas and um, my mother was a doctor as well. So, uh, yeah, I was quite proud of him. And um, he, uh, he sort of had an interesting career after that. But I, well, I guess what's interesting about that um, was that I, we were relatively wealthy. I don't mm. come from, um, and I always make this point, I don't come from a, a, a sort of disadvantaged background at all. I went to uh, good schools. Um, I ended up going to Oxford University. I did a law degree. Um, 
a couple of law degrees. I didn't really feel like... I'd always wanted to be a soldier as a kid, and that got drummed out of me at school. Right. Um, I always really... I was a true believer in... Uh, I grew up on the sort of... Uh, um, <laughs> Adventure movies, uh, Guns yeah. of Navarone and things like that. Yeah. I, that that's what I, I probably took it a bit more seriously than other kids. I, that's what I wanted to do when I grew up. I wanted, I wanted to sort of fight for my country. Um, and uh, at the time, in the, by the time I got finished school in 1981, there wasn't, you know, there was post-Vietnam era. Uh, the, the Australian Army wasn't a particularly attractive prospect. But I, when I was at finishing Oxford University, I met some... British soldiers, officers, and I thought this is what I want to do. They were doing, uh, they were on the Berlin Wall, uh, they, oh, yeah, they yeah. were manning yeah. tanks in Germany, yeah. uh, all that kind of stuff which I'd admired from uh, as, as a kid. Uh, they were doing Northern Ireland, where I'd seen the SAS, British SAS, uh, abseiling through the windows of the embassy, and, and I thought that's this is what I wanted. I wanted to use my brain and uh, uh, planning ability and, and athletic ability to to actually really help people, uh, and so I joined the British Army, and, I, and, and my father wasn't particularly happy about it. Uh, he he had the very uh, uh, old school, I guess. He'd grow, grown up on the idea that the British officers uh, dr drank tea while the Anzacs <laughs> slaughtered in their thousands. Yeah. Um, Did the heavy work. Yeah, thing. and uh, so he wasn't particularly happy. But he, he, he came around. He came to visit me a couple of times. And I really enjoyed my time in the British Army. Uh, I did a tour of Northern Ireland. I went to Sandhurst. Um, and I... I, I uh, not only was it good fun, but you learn about leadership, and I learned a lot. I'd come, even though I'd come from the, the good schools and things, I didn't know that much about leadership, uh, and I learned from uh, those British people um, uh, about what it really meant and what it really meant. Well, you, you won't be surprised to you and your viewers, but the idea it, it's it's about putting yourself last. Uh, officers eat last is one of their sayings, and um, looking after the troops under your command. I serve to lead is the motto of Santos, and uh, and they lived it, they lived it, and uh, I left um, the, the the British Army in the in the mid nineties. I ended up doing uh, security work um, in Africa, and uh, was um, uh, I, I did. Uh, when you say security work, you mean military security Military work. work, yeah. You know, diamond mines, that kind of thing. Oh, okay. The sort yeah. of job that ex-soldiers get. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then I did a, did security work for sort of a, uh, a documentary series. We travelled around the world. Um, went to Afghanistan when the Taliban were in power. Uh, we went to a lot of other rogue nations like Iran, uh, Sudan, uh, uh, Siberia, Eastern Siberia, um, and it was pretty. Uh, as Pakistan, pretty good. Um, it was pretty good to see, uh, uh, you know, some of the places which we hear a lot about. Um, but uh, it was quite nice to see the reality. So I enjoyed. Any, any of those experiences surprise you? Did they, they really blow away your assumptions about what these places? Iran was very like? interesting. Um, it wasn't what I expected, uh, and. Um, I enjoyed it. I'd like to go back, although at the moment it's uh, pretty tragic what's going on there today. But uh, 
And yeah, I, Afghanistan was, I, I'd always wanted to go. That was one of the reasons why I took the job. But as soon as he said the magic words, Afghanistan, we want you to go to Afghanistan, I was like, yeah, I'll go. Um, the ta yeah, well, yeah the, let's talk about Afghanistan because this is where you made your name later on. Yeah. But you, you got to go to Afghanistan pre 9 11. I want the audience yeah. to be clear on that. This is your trip there, you've just been describing, was pre 9 11. Um, it was December 2000, something like December that? December 2000. So this is, this is before most Westerners were paying any attention to what was going on in Afghanistan and, of course, before the war and, and everything that came afterwards. Um, so, and it's ruled by the Taliban, right? How awful was it? And that's, if that's a misleading question, contradict me. <laughs> well, it was pretty bad. Um, it's a leading question, as they say. Uh, but... Uh, we had stuffed the West had stuffed Afghanistan, and a bit like what happened in Ukraine. Um, and what we, well, I'll go right back to the beginnings of the, because uh, and this is all stuff that we met. Uh, I mean, first-hand experience of people that we spoke to um, in Afghanistan. So it's not mm. someone's theory, but it's and I, and I have a typical legal disclaimer. Um, you get people that get very upset, especially often Afghans, well, Afghan Australians who have some sort of Afghan heritage right. who want to tell you, have never been there or who left when they were two or something and want to tell you about it. And it's like, well, and I, you know, I respect the fact that you might have Afghan heritage, but unless you've actually lived there, and these are people that I've met in the country that have told me this. Anyway, not everybody, and it was an interesting thing that you would you just start to see the difference between our propaganda and the truth. Yeah. Of course, I grew up in the um, 80s and, and um, we, uh, we boycotted, we were horrified. I think it was Christmas Eve 1979, the Russians invaded yeah, Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was one of the, um, uh, the, the, the big uh, uh, events that dominated the 80s. Mm. Uh, and uh, Reagan and Thatcher and... Um, but it, it, having since read very reputable books written by Americans about what actually happened, um, it, it wasn't, the Russians, it wasn't nearly as demonic as we made out. I mean, it was a, yeah. the, it, there was already a communist regime there. And I've met people who actually quite liked it and said the problem with it, we were very backward, it was all run in a tribal way, people were starting, and the, you know, I liked, people will say to me, I liked the communist. You know, they, the communists set up farms. The communists did this, and yeah. not everybody felt that. But it wasn't. It wasn't some sort of like, um, you know, concentration camp or something. Some people didn't mind the communists. Uh, and they, also, um, you can see photos from considering what's going on in Iran right now, where yeah. the women are pr protesting, having to wear the hijab. You can see photos of Afghanistan in that era under the yeah. communist rule, where. The, the women of Afghanistan yeah. walking down the street look like women in Paris. Yeah, that's right. They didn't. That's right. A lot of women said that they did because communists didn't care about things like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, um, uh, but because the Americans, being the Americans, and 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 and, and the Russians being, and, and this uh, hypocrisy is shown out now, and that we still hate Russia even though they're not communists. Yeah. That's, so that's go figure. Yeah. yeah no. Yeah. So we don't to do with that anyway. But we hated. We hated these communists, and. Um, uh, yeah, we tried to demonise it like, oh my God, these terrible, terrible people. And um, and actually, I heard 
20 years later, I heard American generals say without a, without a hint of irony, what the Russians uh, uh, tried to do in Afghanistan in the 80s is exactly what we tried to do in the 2000s. Oh. Uh, and they, uh, and they, they weren't even saying it like, isn't that embarrassing? <laughs> They were, right. they were saying it's the you know it's the same and you know bloody Afghans making it hard for us, but um, <laughs> they uh, yeah and and the Russians even said that when when we were kind of like demonising them and, and and doing Rambo movies saying look yeah. at these um, heroic mujahideen you know Rambo three and the James Bond movie called The Living Daylights. In both of those, the heroes were the Mujahideen. Yeah, I'll have to go and re-look at that living yeah, day. Yeah, I, I can't remember that. I yeah. do remember Rambo 3. A friend of mine said it to me. It's quite funny. The heroic Mujahideen. And, um, uh, and the Russians said, you understand that these guys will be fighting you one day. And we were like, oh, as if. We, you know, we are the, we are, we're the, we're the freedom people. Um, and sure enough, they were absolutely right because... Uh, and as, as I said, this is, it's called Ghost Wars. It's a very good book by Steve Collin, and it, it, it attracts all. The Americans just jumped on it because it was, it was a chance to kill Russians. Mm. That's all they okay. didn't care about Afghanistan. And this is one of the, um, uh, uh, the, 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 the big problems. This is, why, this is why there's a quite good justification to say we really, uh, I don't believe 9-11 was really an inside job, but we, but it, it, we did cause that. We certainly, it was a, chemical experiment which we made possible there was so much money going in there from the Saudi Arabians so much money from the Americans and they were matching dollar for dollar um, and uh, we gave out all these sort of uh, blowpipe and uh, javelin missiles and um, mm. uh, and then stingers eventually and um, and we had to eventually come by they would give anybody arms who was going to kill Russians and nobody yeah. it was not police well and we created a, a terrible thing. And then after, and then as soon as the Russians left, we abandoned them. And that, that, that vacuum meant that the most terrible people were, uh, everyone was a warlord. People who we, we, you know, a few months beforehand were calling brave Mujahideen. Turned out they were murdering pedophiles uh, and the most odious people. And they all set up their own little fiefdoms and uh, you couldn't go from block to block without having to pay one of these guys yeah, money. Right. And they had like their own dungeons and torture chambers. In fact, one of the things that we'd, we'd like to downplay, um, and then it, the whole place was wrecked because, and they all, uh, they had like say 10 of these different um, warlord groups and they all went to Kabul to try to win. They all got up on the hills in Kabul and apparently they were just firing these heavy weapons down into Kabul Every major, um, you know, building was destroyed. That wasn't the Taliban. That was the, I swear, that was the people we backed. Yeah, that yeah. was the people we yeah. backed, and they destroyed Afghanistan. And they and, and and what really happened? And this is what people don't understand. Uh, those those kind of mini warlords, for want of a better expression, but they were pretty horrible people. Would just go around and they'd rape people. They would just take twelve-year-olds out of homes and yeah, and. The Taliban rose to power because um, Mullah Omar, who had been a brave Mujahideen in that he had actually fought the Russians, uh, just like, you know, the sort of people with lion eyes, but he heard of, and he would, then he devoted his life to religion, teaching, like he was a Sunday school teacher sort of thing, uh, and he heard about uh, the latest 
in many rape of, I think, twins, 12-year-old twins by the local warlord. And he got a group uh, of people together, his buddies, whatever, and they went to the warlord's place. They were way outgunned. I think there was a small amount of them, 10 as opposed to 40 from the warlord, quite a relatively small skirmish. But they, they had the fire... Uh, of, of vengeance in their eyes, yeah. and they hung this wall from the tank. Now that's tr that's kind of true, and we do we downplay that, and we tried to paint him as the bad guy, but here's a guy who was first motivated um, to to go into action because he was anti. You know, we try to say, oh, women and girls, and he, he, he his first yeah, yeah, military yeah. action was actually to, was was to avenge the rape of some two 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 females, two young girls, and. So it wasn't nearly as clear cut. Um, and then they, they swept the country. And, and again, it's, it's an unpalatable truth. And this is one of the problems we have, and this is why I get into arguments with Afghans um, about it, or you know, people who don't actually live in Afghanistan but sort of have, have heritage, but to say um, whether we like it or not, <laughs> Uh, they were a popular movement with a fair bit of support, not, uh, not 100% at all, but they had support. Uh, and they also, and we hated that. Remember, we tried to say they're not the real government, we're a bit yeah, like yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We're Taiwan yeah. for many years. We, you know, they had this like, you know, phony government that didn't even live in Afghanistan. They were the real government. But they, we, we drove around the country when the Taliban were there and they did control the country and they, they were a de facto government in the uh, sense that they, they had a minister for health. We met him, he was a, he was a doctor. They were trying to feed people. They were most upset that you know they, they had famines in '98 and '99, and a lot of their children died. And that's not to say that they were you know they weren't religious extremists. They were, but they were a product of um, however many years of absolutely terrible civil war, which the West had sponsored. The, you know Saudi Arabia in the West. Uh, it was a ruin. The country was a ruin before they took over. Uh, and they were trying to, uh, they were trying to put it back together. So you're you're there about ten years after the West, or the Americans withdrew. Yeah. And um, you you see in Afghanistan where the Taliban, for all its faults, has brought order to the chaos. Yeah. And so you see a more functional society, um, and you also see that um, uh, you got a story that I'd like you to tell about your experience where. Um, uh, you know, you're a Christian in this most oppressive of Muslim societies, supposedly, mm. yet um, you were accepted. I mean, you weren't, you know, you, you got away with being a Christian there yeah. traveling around the our, place. Our propaganda was, um, and this is one of the reasons why, I was, you, know, that, oh, they're, you know, they're chopping the heads off Christians and, and they, they want to have, have world revolution and blah, blah, blah. And, and my experience was that that wasn't true. Um, like, I, I, I was the, not just the security, it was loosely termed, I was like the fixer. You know, I wasn't on the screen, but I would go and meet with the, uh, the you know, the, the representatives of the government. And I was a soldier, so I'm not, I can understand that some of my opinions would offend people. But I, I'd been in Rwanda during the massacres, I'd, you know, I'd met the Soviets. And so I'm used to dealing with people from the other side without getting too yeah. personal about it. Um, but yeah, we uh, we didn't. They didn't care that we were Christians. They knew we were Christians. Uh, they didn't have a problem with uh, Christianity. You couldn't be a missionary and convert um, yeah. Muslims. But they didn't. Uh, our propaganda tried to paint them as much more um, 
you know, crazier than they were. One night we we were we were in our. It, it was certainly very an ugly place. Um, there were no women on the streets or anywhere, and it was dirty. But um, that was that wasn't because of the Taliban. Uh, that was because of the, the the twenty years of war that had gone on beforehand. Yeah. Um, in the same way that you know, London was probably a pretty ugly place in 1945. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, so we were. Uh, Sleeping in this very basic kind of hotel, and the and the door gets kicked open. It <laughs> it still makes me laugh now at two in the morning. And these guys, I don't know if you know that they have makeup. They have makeup on the sort of oh really? Well, it's <laughs> they wouldn't call it makeup. They'd be offended, but they have this black eyeliner under their eyes. Oh and they, and yeah, they, I've seen those. And like, they have black know. turbans on. And they look quite forbidding. It's yeah. quite unusual. They always yeah. look like an. It's not sure whether they're an eighties rock star or. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and they come in with their AKs, they don't come in with their AK, and they're like, they get their beards, and they're like, yeah, get up. Well, we didn't understand, but they're obviously saying, get out and pray. In the morning, you know, do your morning, uh, mid-morning prayers. And then they saw us in bed, you know, with our white skin, and we had to grow beards to travel around, but they were crappy beards, six-week beards sort of thing. And they just started laughing. And they said, oh, no, no, it's all right, it's all right, sorry. And you don't have to go and pray, you know, you're a Christian. And um, yeah, so it, it didn't fit, it doesn't fit with the Western propaganda to say uh, there were these, you know, blow, you know yeah. baby-eating people. That wasn't the experience. And I said, if we, if, if we had wanted to, and, and quite the opposite, they cared about their children. Um, and we, one of the most moving things we did, we went to uh, a refugee camp because uh, the famines uh, had... Uh, it was a very unlucky country, and the, and the famines in 98 and 99 had meant there was no food, and a lot of thousands and thousands of Afghan children and people died. And we went to the refugee camps oh, because they were displaced. And they brought us their dead children. They brought us, and, and they'd say, you know, and it was made worse by the Western sanctions. And they'd say, you know, you, you, you say that you don't like, you know, like us because of women's rights or something, but here's our dead, here's my dead daughter. Yeah. You know, how have you helped her? How have you helped her women's rights? She's dead now because you won't give us baby food or whatever it was. Yeah. All these sanctions, the same as Iran, which just killed the normal people. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't achieve anything. And they just thought we were hypocrites. Well, they were pretty good. They didn't. None of them ever said we're going to. We're going to kill, kill you because of that. Yeah. yeah. They all just. They just were kind of crying. Yeah. And sort of like, we, you know, hurt, hurt, a bit like childlike. They were quite childlike in some. And just, I don't mean that in a patronising way, but they were in some ways, it's an admirable way. But they were they were quite hurt and confused as to why uh, we, we weren't doing more to help them. And they particularly, uh, this is the whole sort of idea that, you know, we, they hated Christians was wrong. They used to say things like, we can't understand why you don't want to, you know, the Americans, um, they didn't really understand what Australia was, but the Americans don't want to help us, um, we, you know, because we're both kind of cowboys. You're cowboys, <laughs> we're cowboys, you know, we fight the bad guys. And um, yeah, they didn't see it in terms of Christianity versus Islam. Right. They, they kind of saw that they were kind of they had a, both had a bit of a swagger, and they fought bad guys. They didn't like you know, and they were bemused. They, they would have loved to have had American support. It was nothing to do with it, but we like to paint it as, as a, a religious clash, but it wasn't. Yeah, um, and 
And so they were frustrated and they didn't like Osama bin Laden. They didn't, there were Arabs there. It was one of my, another one, it's quite a funny story because I was meant to be doing the security and well, I was doing the security and, I, and I'd become quite laid back and sort of like, a thought. And at one point we were in uh, Kabul and this guy came in, um, uh, big guy, Arab guy, not Afghan, you could tell yeah, because yeah. he, um, he had his Arab scarf and um, he came, and he had no AK, everyone's got an AK. He came into the hotel, it was, it was like a little sun lounge. I was lying on the sun lounge. It was, um, and we, I think we'd finished all the filming and we had all the boxes and he's panicking. He's quite a big guy um, and, and he's got a, a beard. And he's like, who are you, who are you? And he's got an American accent. <laughs> And uh, right. a New Jersey accent, what, we, what I would consider New Jersey, nasal, a nasal sort of uh, East Coast accent. He's like, where's my neighbor? Where's my neighbor? And he's got this uh, AK and he's pointing it at me and everyone, everyone or, where's my neighbor? Who are you? And, and, and I was like, oh, yeah. and I was just like, oh, I just lay there. I didn't even get off the banana chair. And he's like pointing the gun at me, who are you? Who are you? That's my neighbor. And um, I'm like, we're just a TV crew. Uh, we're just doing a documentary. Your neighbor's gonna, you know, come back. Um, but it, it, he was, and we had a, our cameraman was, I don't know whether he was a spook or something. He was an English guy who'd been there for a long time and he knew a lot. And he said, that guy, I said, oh, afterwards, it, the crew were quite panicked because this guy was pointing this gun and he was sweating and he looked like he was gonna shoot one of us. Um, uh, and then he eventually we calmed him down and he walked out and uh, I said, they, the rest of the camera crew were like, fuck, that was pretty bad. And I was like, oh, he was never going to kill anybody. He was never going to shoot anybody. Uh, you know, I could tell he was nervous. And the cameraman, the English cameraman said, no. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's a member of something called Al-Qaeda, which we know. <laughs> he's an Arab based here. Um, <laughs> He's been educated in America, uh, and yeah, he he would have killed you, and he would have not only killed you, but the the Taliban would have buried your bodies in the in the rubbish dump tomorrow, and nothing would have happened. Um, and that was our first Whoa. experience. We'd never. I like to think because he, I looked him up because he had this sort of New Jersey nasal right. accent. I think you know. I think he was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and, <laughs> and and a friend of mine says, "Oh, it wasn't him because cause you see the photos. Even after it'd been waterboarded." 468 yeah, yeah, yeah. times and yeah he looks a bit different yeah, yeah, yeah. but um the photos of him <laughs> uh young uh kind of chubby face because he was he was a planner rather than any kind of operative and he's he looks a bit like a sort of an accountant with a beard yeah um but he had lived in in virginia or somewhere and i think this mother you know and experienced a lot of racism and you know whatever and he ended up with a real hatred of america but um he, he would have had an you know an american accent wow and um, yeah, so I underestimated him. Uh, he was certainly uh, quite dangerous, but uh, uh, it was quite a year. It was, you had experiences like, but the Afghans did not like them. They, they were taking mm. their money, they were living there, but, uh, but they were instantly recognizable. Uh, uh, they, they spoke Arabic, not the local language. They had very pale uh, white skin. Uh, and they had money, but they were living there as some sort of a uh, ruling class. But it was quite interesting because there was not really any love lost for them. So the idea that it was some sort of a Islamic conspiracy to take them. And, and one oh, thing yeah. that the, 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 the Taliban had no desire for world revolution. 
in the same way that the Soviets probably didn't either in, in the 60s and 70s, in the, they were just trying to feed their people, get some sort of control, and they certainly didn't want to... Well, the Chinese now. Yeah, the know. Chinese now. Yeah, I would say exactly. Can, um, so less than a year later, 9-11 happens, and of course there's straightaway an invasion, bombing and then an invasion of Afghanistan. Thank you so much. Um, did you... What did you think of the narrative of that at the time? Did you think, well, this doesn't really gel with what I know, or did you just accept it? What, what did you think? I was probably a bit like the Taliban in the sense that I knew it was inevitable. And I think even they, um, they knew the game was up at that stage because they were uh, like, well, you know, they were human beings and they realised that... Um, uh, Whatever, whatever excuses they may have had to uh, accommodate Al Qaeda, um, uh, Al Qaeda had killed a lot of innocent people, and uh, now there was going to be retribution. And I think that's why the, the, the CIA took over the, the country so quickly. Was the Taliban kind of just threw down their arm? They didn't because they felt bad about it. They had some. It's almost childlike. Something in the West we don't accept. We can't. Um, and in some ways, it's it's embarrassing that we can't accept it because we have become so so used to lies and double dealing and whatever. We can't believe that people might actually, um, uh, you know, uh, tell the truth and and feel guilt, uh, collective guilt, and and not just want to lie. I think they did feel a fair bit of collective guilt. They put their weapons down and they and they got out. Um, Certainly, the, the accounts I've seen, they, they didn't really fight very hard. They were like, fuck, you know, the game's up. We have, this, these people under our, our guests have caused this problem. Um, the Americans are, are, are rightly out for revenge. Um, but then they, uh, the Americans lost the moral high ground, I guess, because they, they didn't really know. I, th I believe, and no one else really believes this apart from me, it was quite funny. I believe it was all a bit of an electoral stunt, and they were dropping bombs because it because it won the it, it won votes, it, we, you know it won. It, we, I, we could have settled that issue without invading it, and uh, in fact, a very good international lawyer, who is no one took seriously because the people it was an emotional issue. People got emotional about it, and not surprising seeing people you know jump. Off the towers and things like that. It was yeah, yeah. it brought home death, but it, it didn't. It wasn't logical in that every every day in the Middle East, in, it, it, people were getting killed or in yeah, Africa yeah. or whatever. Yeah, of course. You know, it wasn't as if it was the first time civilians had died. Um, a lot of them in America's hand. I mean, how many people died in in uh, uh, Cambodia? You know, in, in the, a million or something that the Americans killed in fireballs, and yet no, no one cares about that. No one really thinks about it. But uh, it was emotional, and a good scholar said we don't really have the legal, uh, we don't have the right to take over Afghanistan any more than if you know a, a terrorist group based in Broome uh, attacked Indonesia. Indonesia would have the right to take over all of Australia. Yeah. But uh, that didn't matter. Americans do what they want, and and also it wasn't really going to wasn't really going to work. And they didn't really know what they were doing. But funny enough, it was such a vote winner, and it happened so quickly. They went. They they felt they were already repair, preparing for Iraq um, in two thousand and two. You know, early yeah, two thousand and two. Yeah. And that that I found. This is something I've only found out 
relatively recently because I didn't know. Um, but American friends of mine in the American military confirmed that, but I've also read reputable books to say that they were given orders for Iraq long before the whole weapons of mass destruction thing yeah, for sure. came out. Well, and, the famous one is Wesley Clark himself, the yeah. former NATO commander, said the week after 9-11, he was given yeah. this list. We're going to go yeah. to all seven these countries. countries. Yeah. Seven countries and seven Yeah, years. and he's hardly, you know, conspiracy theorist. Um, that's right, yeah. yeah. And it's funny, but no one really seems to care. But that's, for me, for someone who's a professional soldier, that stuff matters. The idea that we lied about the weapons of mass destruction, the idea that it was all a bit of a game, it was all for long-term uh, US geopolitical um, that makes my blood boil because soldiers, good soldiers, die for bullshit, and I don't, I don't agree with that. No, it's fascinating to me. Some reason, the fact you just said that strikes a chord. So when you say as a professional soldier, the, the motive the soldier takes to war yeah. is important. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and it's got to be we based on the we truth. Don't, yeah, we don't. Know, you know, you go to Sandhurst, and I used to think Duntrim, not sure, but you actually believe in that stuff, in in truth and honour and. Uh, we go there uh, to fight the, the, the bad guys, the Nazis who are putting Jews in concentration yeah. camps and killing them, and that's wrong. We're going to stop that. But uh, the idea, yeah, you're not just um, fighting for whatever your politician wants. If it's bullshit, uh, yeah. that's out outrageous. You have to, have to have the moral high ground. Not only is that what we teach, you won't win, and that's one of the reasons why we've lost Vietnam, we've lost yeah. Vietnam. We've never had the moral high ground. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I feel it very strongly. That's why I'm in the position, and we'll get to that, but, you know, where I am. It matters. The truth matters. Uh, morals matter. We can't, you can't go to war and kill people, and um, if, you, if you are actually the bad guys, um, it's, not a, it's not some sort of a game of football. You're meant to, you're meant to be fighting for some sort of principle which represents uh, you know, what you stand for. That principle is meant to be good. Uh, it can't be just um, to put the other guys down because they're an economic threat. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, that may be what it is, but for a soldier, that's not good enough for me. I'm not going to accept no. that. Especially when we keep telling people we are the good guys and we believe in all that shit. Um, we, have to, we have to put our money where our mouth is. And someone like me, I just had to swear an oath before I, and I took it seriously. It meant something to me. So when um, and why did you enlist in the Australian Army? It's a good question. I missed the, the, I missed the British Army. It was some of the happiest years of my life. Uh, I, um, I was trying to do uh, a TV series, couldn't get another TV series off the ground. Uh, got to work, got a job as a lawyer, um, which I didn't love, but as a civilian lawyer. Uh, and I'd heard that you could uh, you could get a bit of I was a barrister, criminal barrister. You get a bit more work if you were doing um, court martials uh, when you're in, in your early days. And so I looked into it, um, and um, I quite enjoyed it. I was going to then do reservist. I was going to do reserve commando sort of stuff. And someone said, "Don't don't bother doing that. You'll just you know after doing the British Army, it'll be boring." And and uh, so I started doing the court martial trials, and I quite enjoyed it. And my wife said to me, "Look." Um, you obviously really like working for the, the, the government, the public service, or you know, whatever, doing, doing service. 
you want to join full time. So I thought about it and I thought, yeah, I, want, I joined full time. And it was a big deal to me. And the, oh, mate, you get to choose your day. I chose the 15th of December, which is my birthday. Right. And I went to the Parramatta recruiting office and I swore on the Bible. They were a bit bemused that I was rejoining after being in the British Army and I was older. Um, uh, but I, uh, yeah, I, I genuinely um, wanted to do something good for this country and, uh, and put, put my life on the line to, to protect it. And um, yeah, I was pretty proud of it to be, uh, to, uh, I was, yeah, I was a believer again. My father, my grandfather had been in the, in the Western Front. Uh, he'd been wounded over there. Um, and he was a stretcher bearer. He wasn't, he wasn't any great hero. But, and he never talked about it. But yeah, I thought that the um, Australian Army would be something, um, it was kind of a, a, a second chance in my career. I thought this would be really, really good. And I, I enjoyed the, uh, the first couple of um, years. Uh, I was uh, at Holdsworthy, then I went to Townsville. And I, uh, I loved the Townsville. I had a couple of kids. We enjoyed the whole Queensland experience. And I went to Afghanistan, um, with the infantry brigade based at Townsville, and uh, uh, what year was your first deployment? You went twice to Afghanistan, I went right? Twice. 2011 was my first deployment, most of 2011. Um, and I mean, it's good. There were good people, and it was. It, it's a very professional outfit. The average, you know, person in the Australian Army is even the private soldiers are pretty smart, pretty highly motivated. Um, and that much impressed me, uh, but it was polit you know it was very political, and I and I could see that even from the first trip. And, and uh, uh, how so? What, well, the, the uh, we uh, Julia Gillard visited at the time, and uh, as oh, prime yeah. minister, and as did Tony Abbott, um, as, de as a leader of the opposition. And we were briefing them and uh, saying, "Oh, look, it's all going well. A lot of PowerPoint." We're going to win next year, basically. But oh. we'd said that the year before and the year before and the year before. Uh, and we didn't really believe it. But people just, it was just, it was a good news operation. As I, and there were a lot, of, a lot of similar ones back in Australia. By then it'd be going 10 years. Yeah. 2011. And we weren't going to win next year. Yeah. We were going backwards. But it was just about putting out uh, good news, because that's all everyone wanted to hear. The minister wanted to hear good messages. Everybody wanted to say. It was one of the standing jokes amongst the sort it was all right when I left, which was like as long as you know, <laughs> as long as you fucking, you, you put up the window window dressing as much as you can and everything supported by gaffer tape and, and bamboo and then you get out before it all collapses and if if it collapses on the next guy, it's their fault. Um, and uh, yeah, but that's what we knew and that's it annoyed me again as a professional soldier because if you if you keep on. You're only going to fail if you just keep uh, repeating failures. It's a bit yeah. like Enron, you know, saying that we're making profits and we're not making profits. Uh, yeah. It's all going to collapse eventually. I don't know. That, I don't know this much about Afghanistan, like I do Iraq. But um, in terms of a forever war, was there a lot of private contractors in Afghanistan, like in Iraq, making money out of this forever war? There was a huge amount. And it is a huge amount, and and I've heard rumours that um, and they sound true. It sounds big deal, but you know those contractors um, were paying sub subcontractors to attack the bases because there was oh. so much money 
in keeping it going. Wow. It might be beyond our comprehension. And, and what would this is one of the things about the wars that again, it's a step too far for most people who, who want to talk about war crimes and individual, but it, uh, the fact of the matter is that these wars make money for a significant... I know it goes far as saying that that's why we have, why the war started, but once they're on, yeah. once the public wants a war, a bit like the war on drugs or something, once it's got political impetus, there is money to be made, big money. Or like even the refugees, for example. Mm. I mean, the people that deal with that, Paladin and whatever, they make big money. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think it's what... It's where we we turn public money into private money, and that six trillion went somewhere. Yeah. And what yeah. what I believe would happen is that someone would build a base, get a contract to build a base. The contract would be for hundred million. It probably only cost fifty million to build. Uh, Twenty five million goes into the pockets of all the directors, um, and quite a say ten million. Um, it would go back to the Republican and Democrat parties uh, to uh, keep them happy, to make sure they get another contract. Dine Corp, you know, they, they, they was big money in in that, and and that's why the, they wanted the wars to go on because yeah, what the taxpayer money ended up in private hands, their friends' hands, Halliburton, etc., and. Um, Yes, it's so it was uh, money that taxpayers that they couldn't get their hands on. It was a way to direct it basically into their own pockets. Uh, so you're seeing you're in Afghanistan and, and seeing that this is quite political. At this stage, are you questioning the geopolitical narratives, the overarching narratives? I think it's slowly, and it's uh, 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 we talked about this last night at the uh, and. Um, I've got to write a book about it. So it is interesting about, it's like you change slowly, 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 and then, and then quickly. Um, yeah, I, 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 I am beginning to question the, uh, uh, I knew the Abu Ghraib come out by then. Right. And, and also one of the things about that is that, um, that they they found a couple of scapegoats, uh, yep. corporals at the bottom, but no one at the no one no one above corporal. Some some rednecks from southern states yeah, of yeah. America copped uh, it all. Reserve, you know, part timers, yeah, and nobody yeah, yeah. from um, uh, nobody from the top at all, and that bothered me. Um, you have to you, you can like in anyone or any organisation, you kind of have a little bit of black humour about it. One of the things I thought was quite interesting about that, I used to laugh because I used to give lectures about. Um, you know, rules of engagement and not torturing. But when I looked into research that, they were, uh, they were look, uh, the torturers, because they had to tortured people to death, were uh, wanted uh, for investigation. And um, there was one, uh, one from the CIA, I think, one from the DOD. And there was a third person who was, uh, who was from neither place and it just made me laugh to think um, that they were some sort of freelance torturer, that they wanted to be a torturer, but they didn't join the, the CIA. They didn't join the DA. They, they did some sort of cert for and torture at the, oh at the local God. TAFE. And uh, so, yeah, it, it went kind of beyond... Uh, I felt increasingly uncomfortable about it, but they, they were incidences of bad... Um, uh, you know, bad soldiers, I would guess. And, and, and you can... And you can 
you can excuse them. There's always going to be bad soldiers, and this is what it's, this is. I guess this is the point I made in relation to that WikiLeaks video. Uh, collateral murder. Yeah, it's not so much the helicopter pilots shooting um, uh, people that they think have got weapons and don't. Uh, that what bad as that is, and and them talking about it in very you know cowboyish sort of terms. What was really bad about that was that the, the, the generals in charge of that area doctored the, the video to make it look like nothing had gone wrong and they put, knowingly put out a false video to try to get the world's press off their back. Now that is a real problem. Yep. I didn't know that at the time. But the, once you get bad people at the bottom of the organisation who, you know, who are going to make mistakes and do crazy shit when you have that many people out there. But once you start getting officers uh, at a higher level, who are getting involved in covering things up? We're starting to get towards a criminal organisation. Yeah. Um, so I was beginning. Uh, I was beginning to get nervous. I guess by the by my next tour. So okay, you're now in Afghanistan on your second tour. Um, this is is this when you start seeing bad behaviour in the among Australian soldiers? Tell us what you discovered. What's the what's it's, the it's gist kind of, of your it's discovery? Kind of, it's funny because I talk about um, it. Did take me a while. It's a bit like the straw that literally the straw that breaks the camel's back, or that drip, drip, drip of water where it suddenly goes mm. over the edge. Because it was relatively, it was relatively small. At well, it, it was a significant incident, but it wasn't necessarily anything that you would. Uh, uh, the uninitiated person would, would see it as a problem. I increasingly thought that it was more from an Australian point of view. The defence force was being used uh, as a political advertising agency. Right. Like, um, you know, uh, putting women first or whatever, that, that, was, that was a huge thing which was, had nothing to do with truly putting women first but everything to do with making the minister look good. Yeah, a glossy brain. I mean, there was no substance in it at all. Yeah, it was just oh, that's what the polling says. People like that. Let's do that. Yeah. And then it had it been, you know, wearing you know orange uniform, you know, they would have done whatever the polling said. And that was a, that was a thing. So they did that. Um, uh, pretty much everything that we knew about the defence force was. You, you see it now. It suddenly it suddenly occurred to me recently. Uh, we have these people in Canberra. You would know them. You'd speak to them. Called staffers, political staffer, and uh, or or no, not, not so much staffers, advisors. They call them advisors. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't work it out. And Kevin Rudd had them on. Often they're they're like thirty years old or yeah. late twenties. Yeah. And and you think, uh, and they you know might be advisor on defence, or and and you think, well, hang on, this person doesn't know anything about defence. They've never been in the military. They don't you know they don't have a you know a master's degree. And and it took me a while. That what they what these advisors advise on, or all they advise on, is how to be more popular. They've got a communications degree mm. or something. Yeah, yeah. And it's all about, say this and people will like you. You know, say, yeah. wear this shirt, people will like you. And they've got no idea, nor do they care about what will actually work. And they are, they, they're like, they are like cockroaches through yeah, part right. of the house. That's right. And they are... Um, uh, uh, it came up, in, you know, in, in the, you know, all the, the trials. Yeah, there's people that actually know nothing about actually running. You know, often they're not married. They know nothing about actually life, but they know a lot about 
advertising and selling things. Apparently, like. Scott Morrison took it to the nth degree. He had the biggest army of these communications people mm. to the point that when he went into um, his multiple COVID lockdowns, he went in there with his cameraman. The cameraman had to be in lockdown with him so they could get photo shoots every day, etc. Because it's all about communication, right? Feeding the feeding oh, the yeah, uh, public. Yeah, yeah, no, it is, and it's you know, it's not, it's not, it's not just them. Um, Bob Carr did it. I mean, it's it's become a real sickness, and, and uh, but yeah, that's that's what they do, and. Um, when uh, the, when they came to visit in Afghanistan, all they really cared about was getting uh, the, the story, getting yeah. a, a popular story. And we've heard, I didn't know this at the time, but we've heard this um, uh, sensationally in the Ben Robert Smith defamation case that um, he uh, wasn't on the top of the shortlist for the Victoria Cross, but he was elevated by, would have been by one of those staffers, you know, 23-year-old, Really, you know Angus, who thought because he's so handsome and he gives a good press conference and he'd be the great person to meet the Queen or the Governor General, and yeah, he's like chis he's like chiselled out of Ayers yeah. Rock or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you know a much better ambassador. Uh, you, you noticed that all the VC, wow. well, apart from Donaldson, I think who totally deserved it. But they, yeah, someone who we're going to look good at the press conference better than someone that fought right alongside him and was just as brave but might be a little bit rough around the edges and wasn't necessarily going to, you know, uh, mind his P's and Q's at the, um, you know, government house. Uh, and that's how sick it had become. And that sort of stuff is corrosive. To, 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 like, yeah. For a professional soldier, the idea that you would elevate someone um, and push someone else down, even though that other person was the more deserving soldier, simply because, yeah, I mean, right. just, my blood boils just talking about it even now. I mean, that is poison. That is the most, and, and, and this is why I've got my, you know, I can't stand David Hurley, because he presided over that time and everything was about publicity. And, he, and it's his job to say no, enough. We're, meant to, we're soldiers, we fight wars, we don't fight uh, political ads, yeah, yeah, but he didn't, and I, and I understand why he didn't because they, he wouldn't have got to his, he wouldn't have got to where he was unless he was a yes man. But still, it was it was very disappointing for me. Um, so are you saying are you saying that contributed to the culture that influenced the yeah you know, the soldiers that then did the bad stuff? There was a there was a a constant sort of tug of war going on in the fence force between. People who were good, people who uh, wanted to do the job properly, and people who were just bullshit and wanted to get get ahead and do uh, whatever the minister wanted. Right. Uh, most of the people at top were like that. Yeah, I think it did contribute. Well, why would soldiers uh, do the right thing um, and not lie if they if their generals lie? And, and, and while yeah. you get uh, uh, and the generals would say, "Oh, it's not lying; it's just carrying out a political." Political uh, objectives for the sake of the government, but it's lying. If it's lying, it's lying. And uh, they, um, e e and this is one of the challenges for me. We get outraged, rightly so, the idea that a soldier may have shot a civilian and then planted a weapon on him and taken a photo and said, "Oh, yeah. he was Taliban." But generals did the same thing. It wasn't as graphic. But yeah, they made up stuff and they said, oh, this is a victory when it's not a victory. We are winning when we're not winning. Uh, and that lack of a, uh, 
an, an army is like a religion. It's, it's like, this is why the Vikings were good. A if you're going to be decent, you people have to be believers and they have to be quite fanatical. We keep it secret because no one really wants to hear that. But obviously, it's, you are quite different. You can be sent to your death mm. and you can't even complain. You can't kind of call your union and say, I might yeah. die. You yeah. That's your job. But you shouldn't be bullshitted. It's, just, it's almost the opposite of the civilian world. And we don't like to talk about it. But it's part, you know, it might be it's part of my job if you're the enemy to get a, you know, a bloody bayonet and stick it through your eye. You know, that's what we're actually, it's one of the first things you learn how to do when you're, you know, it's quite confronting for normal people, but that's what you get trained to do. Well, so, let's go through this systematically because I want to make sure people get the details here. What did you end up, what did you see that you blew the whistle on and how did you first complain? What, did you, how, what process did you go through? I'll do it a little bit of introduction. There was, uh, as we've seen from the Brereton um, report, there were, there were a lot of allegations about what went on in 2012, Ben yeah. Smith's final tour. Talk about murders. Uh, uh, were you there then? No, I okay. was there in 11 and 13, I was, right. I was, but I was in Special Forces headquarters at the time. Oh, okay. So, include uh, listening, hearing things. Yeah. And there was inquiry. There was like the inquiry. So, uh, talk about um, uh, getting the most kills and competition for yep. kills. Yeah. Uh, so I went over in two thousand and something happened in two thousand and thirteen, which I already picked up on before I got in Afghanistan. Uh, there certainly there became a bit of hysteria from the. Um, the leadership. They put out a new rules of engagement and started talking about murder. Um, and I asked, this is before I even went, I said, hang on, why have we changed the rules of engagement? They don't seem to have a problem. And, you know, they, and the, the chief legal officer said something like, oh, we've found out that if you, if you, you can even comply with the rules of engagement and you, and you still could be guilty of murder under Australian law. Now, we don't need to go into all legal, but that was wrong and it was strange. Now, I just suddenly thought, well, hang on. It was a really discordant note that you would mm. sometimes feel. I didn't know what was going on, but I said, hang on, that's weird because that's wrong. And when I, when I dug in, the, what people, I just got told basically, shut up, move along above your pay grade. Uh, and uh, then uh, we also had a few, this is even before I went to Afghanistan, um, we had uh, something called the Jedi Council, which was which was this thing, which was this, which which is painted into this huge you know thing, which was actually a, it was an obscene email trail. Now, why that that wasn't great, but it wasn't it didn't deserve uh, a national press conference before and apart from anything else, that was against the law that you would hold a press conference talking about something before they would have any trials. You just the police can't do that. They got away with it because there was so much hysteria. But again, I thought it was strange and I wasn't involved in, in any way. So I didn't have it. I was just a lawyer observing. And I thought we seem to have been, we seem to be creating smoke screens, jumping it. Oh, yeah. it and it's just changed. 2013, everything starts going crazy in defence. And I get over there um, and we have an incident which is a relatively normal incident. Uh, we... Uh, an SAS soldier who's got an impeccable record, he's done six tours, uh, no reason to uh, believe uh, 
he, you know, he's got some, some axe to grind. He shoots a Taliban person who is, and there's a witness to say the Taliban tried to grab his weapon and, and, uh, and a witness says, yeah, they, they fought over it and he shot him. Um, and we try to put that guy in jail for murder, or the government does. Now I'm like, well, hang on, something is, and I interviewed this, well, I interviewed a few people and um, I got some confidential information to say bad things happened in 2012. You do not, and I put, started to put two and two together to say, hang on, because we didn't do any investigations in 2012. Right. It's like we were doing the shell game. Yeah, we were yeah, suddenly yeah, jumping yeah, yeah. at shadows. We are investigating anything. Right. You know, we investigated, you know, an Apache gunship which shot the wrong target, an American pilot. So it could not have possibly been an Australian crime. We tried to treat that as a murder. And it was just, it was looked like, yeah, it looked like we were creating smoke screens mm. and um, uh, in order to cover up. And why would we do that? Because Ben Robert Smith and the other people were all very, very declarative heroes. And if they were investigated and they weren't even... They weren't, none of that, what they did, was even looked into. Uh, a lot of generals and, and politicians would have come down to it, because I mean, you imagine how embarrassing. You know, they'd go yeah. back and say, here's you are pinning a medal on a guy yeah. who's just blown away yeah. someone for fun. Uh, and so I believe that, but they wanted, they knew it was the, the story was going to come out, and they wanted to find some scapegoats. Very cynical, I thought we were going back, but very cynical, relatively complex PR operation where they just think, yeah, it's almost as if you got the guys that run BHP, PR or whatever, uh, and they have quite a complex uh, but workable PR plan to say, how can we manage, <laughs> was it issue management, reputation management, if you've got people with a whiteboard and a plan to say, we are going to manage this reputational risk with this complicated stuff. Now, I, I and what clued me onto something was, Every time I asked questions about it, I got threats. I got shut up. I got you're crazy. They they um, they psychologically reviewed me uh, oh. twice. Um, you know, mandatory. They just said you're going to you know see this. And the psych passed me. She said he's very angry, but he's not mad, uh, which was true. I was very. And you're just asking questions at this point. Yeah, right? I'm just saying. Hang on, but it was, you know, it was the procedure was it wasn't even like. Richard Balls, the procedure said, you know, we will, in such and such, we will, in, in Y case, we will do X. And we weren't doing that. And nothing had changed. So I was like, well, what's, why? Yeah, and they were just like, shut up, you know, we're going to review. And, and it particularly annoyed me because I was like, well, hang on, my, I'm a lawyer, I'm a major. It's exactly my job to make sure we do the right thing. Uh, so don't tell me this is not important. Because they were like, get back to your day job. And I was like, this is my day job. <laughs> what do you think my day job is? Uh, but they, they, they kind of gaslight you. Um, in fact, they did send me to a, they, they, they sent me to a psychiatrist who, who said I didn't have a leg to stand on legally because I told him I was going to become a whistleblower. Well, I was thinking about becoming a whistleblower. And he said, oh, you wouldn't legally have be able to do that, which is rubbish. But... Um, when he's a, you know, a doctor anyway. So it, it was a weird, they played very underhand. And um, uh, yeah, I didn't, I couldn't see the full picture, but I could see that they were lying and they were covering things up. And I, um, you have to take a bit of a gamble at, at, 
you know, at such a point. Um, and you have to sort of make a decision about what you're going to do. But you know, I, I, I couldn't, with good conscience, not do anything. And it was my conscience that I was trying to, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, satisfy. And this is one of the, the, the things about my case. I don't know that I will get up on the, under the public interest disclosure defence, which under that act, which just comes up in three weeks, because. And I'll say this to the judge, it was never my intention to avoid jail. It was my intention to uh, get change um, in the government departments. And so I didn't, I, I did speak to journalists before, um, in order to get the protection, you meant to wait sure, make sure that, you know, the internal inquiry is totally finished before you go as a journalist. Now I had no faith at all in the internal inquiry. When you make an internal inquiry in the Department of Defence or, um, or anywhere, uh, it's looked at by the very people you're complaining about. So not surprisingly, um, it, it's going to be likely to get down. Yeah. But I did, I did make an internal inquiry and I, and, and I still had it a career. I loved my job. It was a really good job for me, half soldier, half lawyer. And I was hoping, uh, I wanted to keep it. So it was relatively uh, stiff upper lip, I guess, to, diplomatic uh, to mm. say, hang on, I get there was a war. I get that we have geopolitical, uh, you know, uh, things to worry about, but uh, I think there's a limit to how much we can just make shit up, um, and we need to be careful about the law and um, and the truth. And yeah, I was trying to be subtle about it, and I was hoping that they might say, "Yeah, we got a bit carried away." Um, thank you for pointing it out, but it didn't. It had the opposite effect. They were like, "Fuck you! How dare you question?" You know. Us, you are now the enemy, and I had a really good career. You don't get to be the you know legal advisor to Task Force sixty six and uh, you know Special Operations Command and without being considered one of the best in your cohort. Yeah. Um, but then suddenly my career really tanked, and and it was all uh, it was all over. That didn't scare me because it just it just made me want to dig in. I thought you know, this is exactly what we are meant to do. We're meant to stand up, and I and I uh, I'm using. Uh, my own, all the stuff they trained me to do, they, they would have trained me to say, you don't give up just because things get a bit tough. So, so when did it go from being questions to you actually not figuring out something really bad had gone on here? Well, I put and in a, finding it took out about the details. a year. It put, it, I put in a, 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 a complaint, um, a written complaint, one year, well, pretty much after I got back from Afghanistan, not, not quite, about eight months. Um, so what, 2014 or 2014, so? late yeah. August 2014. And uh, they took a year to look at it. Um, well, they looked at it. They took a year to come back to me and they said nothing is uh, nothing wrong. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's a lie. But because um, uh, things were clearly wrong. But yeah, so I could, I, I could see that we weren't following the law. Uh, we were just putting out false statements. Um, we were looking for scapegoats and uh, the rumours were abounding that there were there was a lot of uh, there had been a lot of war crimes. Um, as I said, it was it was not so much the soldiers. Never been for me. It's never been about bad soldiers or war crimes. They are a symptom of a much bigger problem. If it was just a matter of yeah. some corporals, you know, shooting, we could fix that relatively easily. We by having a few trials for the corporal. It's a much 
much more an insidious problem. It's not so much about the last war for me, it's about the next war. If we're a bullshit organisation that just makes stuff up according to whatever um, you know, political winds are blowing that day, we are in, we're going to lose yeah. every war and we're going to be going into uh, you know, very false wars all the time. So hang on, let me be clear on this. You, when you eventually go to the, the media and blow the whistle, you're not so much in your mind blowing the whistle on the, the, the bad actions of Australian soldiers. You're blowing the whistle on the system. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That was your motivation. And that was one of the problems I had because it was too big. Um, you're too big, you know, for, you know, the, you never see it. I, the days of Watergate, I was expecting it was, it was, it was like Watergate for me. You know, and I was hoping... I was hoping that I wouldn't lose my career. In the best case scenario, someone would start asking hard questions to the prime minister or minister or whatever, and they wouldn't be able to answer them. Yeah, but I was definitely, and I was hoping that there'd be, you know, be a seismic change, fall of government as a result um, of these idiosyncrasies. You know, the fact that they get caught out lying. Now it didn't turn out like that because it was too. People don't really want to know um, that the whole system is, might be stuffed, you know, that we are, we are an organisation that lies, habitually lies. Um, and that was what I was, what, that was what I was really worried about. And so, but I've been lucky. I've had a lot of luck, you know, the, the story of the Afghan files came out. It did talk about war crimes and it did, it, it had, the, it had enough of what I was saying in that it was definitely implying that uh, the leadership knew or didn't do yeah. enough about it. Can I ask how you got those files? Uh, I downloaded them off the sort of defence internet. Well, I was, I was, um, uh, I had the, the top security clearance so I could see them and they were all confidential files on the... Uh, uh, you went looking for them because to figure yeah, out what I've, had gone yeah, on the I, year. I, that, in that eight months, yeah, in that yeah. eight months I came back. Um, I already, I, I came back from Afghanistan in 2013 very angry. Yeah. I knew I was going to. I knew I was going to go to war on um, the leadership. So you knew something had gone badly wrong, yeah. and it was being covered up. That's yeah. what you knew. I knew. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I knew the organisation was rotten. Yeah, you yeah. know, it was not fit for purpose. And particularly, again, I didn't come from some sort of too do gooder. It was more like we are not going to win a war against Fiji the way we're going <laughs> because we just make shit up. We know we make heroes up that are not heroes. We we yeah. villains that are not villains. You know, we, I saw it, I felt quite vindicated, tragic as it is for the people of Afghanistan, but um, uh, a little over a year ago, and uh, when the, the regime that we'd, we built at the, at the cost of six trillion or whatever it was, collapsed in a week, yeah. you know, with the, with the president running away with millions of dollars in his helicopter or whatever, that, that was the sort of, and you, no one seems to, you know, remember that, that, that epitomised us. As, yeah. a, as a defence force, that is that is what we created. That was as bad as good. Not that they weren't good soldiers, but that's bullshit. Yeah. And we, um, uh, that was what I was fighting against. To say we are, we, everything you think you know about it is 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 all an ad. It's all just made up by some pimply staffer um, in uh, in uh, in Russell, and, and it has no exception in reality. And it worries me because these people are meant to be defending. Our country, we're meant to be defending our children and the future, but they've got no idea about actually defending Australia. 
everything is about what's the next glossy brochure on Afghanistan yeah. or whatever. And that, that's what really made me angry to and, say, and we don't, we're not protecting Australia. And General David Hurley, who is now our Governor General, yep. was in charge of all this. He was in charge of all of this, exactly. And he, it, it's absolutely part of, central to uh, uh, being a military officer is that the person at the top takes responsibility. Um, he went, he was interestingly enough, he went from uh, Chief of the Defence Force to Governor of New South Wales and Governor of New mm. South Wales to Governor General. Uh, he's someone politicians like. <laughs> and um, they don't just like him because there are plenty of other, you know, Chief of Defence Forces that, that haven't become Governor General. Sure. Uh, and um, what's the discriminator? And I reckon he was someone that did what they wanted. I, and I think this has been borne out in the McMinistries thing when he, uh, he signed off on um, questionable appointments, didn't get second opinions, didn't tell anybody about it. And I think that that's, while that's not maybe the crime of the century, it does show he's the sort of person that will do whatever politicians ask him to do without even... Yeah, him. the first time Morrison comes to him and says, I want to make myself health minister, Maybe David Hurley didn't, had forgotten there was already a health minister. But after he comes back and says, I want to be Home Affairs Minister and I want to be Defence Minister, I want to be this minister and that minister, you think you would have thought, hang on, there's already ministers for there. Why, yeah, yeah. why, why and, didn't he question I this? Think they, I think they told Greg Hunt, the Melbourne, they didn't tell the others. Now, that's, what, that's right. So that's what, right. As, as I said, as a barrister, you'd say that that is indicating of, of guilt. Yeah, they yeah, didn't yeah, even yeah, tell yeah. them, and there was yeah. no photo opportunity or anything like that. You'd say, yeah, exactly. You and Hurley loves a photo opportunity with his pen and, and the photo of the portrait of the Queen. He loves that, but they didn't do any of that. And as a barrister, you'd say, uh, this indicates you, you knew it was wrong. And I don't, I don't think it was a coincidence he became Governor General because he was just the, they knew he was the sort of guy that would do what he's told. So when you're when you're thinking about leaking the Afghan files, was he personally in your sights saying, I want this whole thing cleaned up? Well, they're all as bad as each other. But yeah, he's, he's always been my... Um, I like to see it in military terms. And, and uh, they have something called the uh, uh, Joint Prioritised Effects List, which is the, basically the kill capture list, the target list. Uh, he's always been my number one because, yeah, he, he was in charge. And, he, and it was hard for me because people had this you know, very... Um, a positive image of him, and even friends of mine used to say, "Don't attack Hurley. Everybody loves Hurley." But I sometimes you can do the most terrible things just by looking the other way. Yeah. And I think he was that kind of guy. He he just allowed all sorts of um, complete trashing of the of the officer ethos by not standing up for his own people. Like for example, when that guy cut off, it's just hard for the an SAS. Corporal, who was a very, you know, had a good record. He cut off the hand of the, the dead Taliban to have it up so they could fingerprint. He was in a hurry. There was a firefight going on, and it was on a, you know, windy mountaintop of dangerous position. And unless you've done that kind of stuff yourself, you really shouldn't be criticised. I mean, he said, I was in a hurry. I wanted to take the sample. And Hurley, totally, rather than supporting his guy and saying, well, he made a difficult decision and, and it wasn't, because it turns out it wasn't illegal, even though it might have turned people's stomachs. Um, Hurley did not even defend that soldier. And that's, that turned my stomach to say, you've got you've to stand up for your people. 
Uh, and uh, that's, what it off that's what a general does. The politician might not like it, but they sack you. So what, you've done 40 years, there's nowhere for you to be promoted to. It turns out there yeah. was somewhere for you to be promoted. Uh, at, some <laughs> point, right. at some point, Commander you're meant to say, yeah, no, I'm going to... Yeah, you know, I'm going to stick up for my people rather than just do what you want because, you know, you... Might so an incident like that, as distasteful as it is, he doesn't defend his soldier. No. With real, with real war crimes, he covers them up. Yeah. Mm. So let's get back to you, though. When, when you decide to leak these documents, um, how fearful were you? I was angry more than fearful. And again, I, I, I guess because I, I saw it as a military mission. I saw it was my duty. Uh, I felt like a bit of a spy. And um, it was kind of comical at times. So I, you know, I, I had to get a lot of secret documents out of the... Uh, uh, and this is typical. It's a bit like the Optus thing. For all the... Um, and I'm sure Optus spent millions of dollars on uh, cyber. <laughs> and yet they, did, you know, they probably had conferences and they had brochures and whatever. Yeah, yeah. World's best practice. But actually, some you know hacker could just you know just it was like whatever. There was the store was open, but um, uh, same in that they had these iris scanners and they had hand scanners and all that kind of stuff. But I just managed to walk out with all these secret documents, and someone would have been paid millions and millions and millions of dollars for this security arrangement, which did not work for everyone. So, so you didn't have to do anything, anything as elaborate as Edward Snowden? No, the, no, no, no. Rubik's I, Cube and all that. <laughs> I didn't. Unfortunately, I didn't. I didn't. Sadly, like Snowden, I, was, I knew that you'd have to, um, you know, butter up the security guards and be very nice to them and talk about the football and whatever and distract them. Because um, they did have to, uh, you know, they, they did check your bags, but if you were friends with them, they might not. And they, uh, they had this stupid system where... Um, uh, they tried to stop you taking uh, secret documents out of the um, building because they had pink paper, bright pink paper in the secret document um, printer. But uh, next to it was the sort of unclassified printer with white paper. So guess what? And the, and the, they weren't locked. So yeah. That's simple. Yeah, yeah. You put the white paper in, in one and you printed out secret stuff on white paper and you walked out and they'd say, is that secret? Oh, no, it's white paper. Oh, <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and we're going to go to war on with China. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and these are the sort of people that take you know millions and millions and millions of dollars from the taxpayer money um, for you know security. And it was yeah, it wasn't that hard. In fact, it, you know, I even got them to help me carry because I had so many secret files. I had to get help to carry them. Oh, can you carry carry them? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. And. Um, so yeah, but I was I was angry, and I took, I went home and I told my wife, and I said, "Look, the cops could be coming soon," because I knew that it would eventually it was going to come out, um, and I, I, and I wasn't sure how she'd take it. Um, she knew she 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 it had been death by a thousand cuts for us, and that I would come home each day and say, "This is bullshit. This is bullshit. This has yeah. happened now." And so she knew, but still, it was, it's a big step to get your wife to sort of become a. Uh, a uh, accessory after the fact to a sort of major national security crime, and I, I didn't know whether she'd say, "Oh my God, I don't want the, you know the embarrassment of the cops coming." And she, but she said, "Bring it on!" You know, uh, she was happy. She was because she was so angry wow. herself. She was really angry herself. She, when I went to Afghanistan the second time, it was very hard for her the first time. She didn't. Defence have, you know, the, the ultimate... Because she'd encouraged you to join the army. Yeah, she didn't yeah, yeah, I would yeah. never have joined And enjoyed with. life up to a certain point. Yeah, well, yeah, she yeah. she was from the eastern suburbs of Sydney. It was a, it, She wouldn't have had any 
friends and actually she funnily enough she had done army reserve but again all her friends thought she was quite nuts but so she did have some sort of it was very out of her family you know, out of her mm. background having to do with the army so uh and i didn't think she'd want to become an army wife and um, but she did and we went to townsville and um uh and totally lived that whole army and she loved it but um so yeah, I couldn't have done it without her doing it. So she's always been a big part of my life. And um, so um, well, when your attitudes changed and you're bringing all this baggage home, she's getting angry at the, well, the corruption that's making bullshit. you so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, she's yeah, exactly. She she saw them on a couple of different levels that they they uh, they talked about being family friendly and they talked about you know right. all you know women and girls and blah blah blah. They had all this. The, you know, the pimply staffers from, couldn't get enough glossy brochures about how good they were, but they, did, they, she, they didn't visit her, they didn't call her, they didn't do it. She, she was a forgotten person as far as the military was. So she just began to hate them as much as I did. For, in the, yeah. She could see yeah. they were just full of bullshit. Yeah. And um, they said one thing and did totally another. And while, uh, you know, they'd say, oh, we're all about women and girls, but, you know, she was a woman and my daughters were... Um, women, um, and yet they, they were happy for, uh, this time they had been psychologically reviewing me and, you know, they would have been happy if, for me to kill myself. I think they were trying to drive me to suicide. And uh, yeah, so she used to say, well, what about your daughters? They're women. They don't seem to care about them. Um, you know, so that, I don't, they didn't really care about this gender. It was all just window dressing to make themselves look good. And they were trying to grind me into the ground. So she really didn't like but still i was impressed that she was like yeah i'm, I'll, sure. I'm behind you the whole way uh, no, that, no that is impressive a lot of a lot of partners would have been very upset at their husbands for <laughs> putting and bringing the, all this down on them now is it fair to say though uh david that or is it accurate to say you felt you had to flee the country yeah what, yeah i knew um, it took a while for the abc to to put them um the documents up online what they did um the Afghan files, and they and they ran that story, uh, and I knew that I'd be in the frame for it because they actually the. This is 2018, right? This is 2017. 2017. Yeah. And they used they used you know the, you could see it was the original documents that I'd printed off, and some of them I think had <laughs> my hand scrawls on them. Right. Uh, and it wouldn't have even with defence, it wouldn't have been wouldn't have been rocket science for them to, to sort of do a scan and say who printed all these documents, and it would have come up with one name. Not that they would have needed to know that because I've been I've been agitating within the the organisation for for like four years by this stage, and so they knew you know they knew all about me, um, and uh, so yeah, I was going to be arrested, and then the old. So I took off to Spain. Um, I thought I would go and get a job uh, with a Red Cross in, because uh, I had that skill and rules of engagement. And um, uh, I had to learn Spanish. I, I, Spain was kind of good because it was, it, it was extradition. I knew from Christopher Scase, extradition was a little bit harder for Spain. <laughs> from Christopher Scase. Going, they contacted me, the <laughs> AFP contacted me and said, you'd be like, you know, my wife called that story, so before that, Sarah called me and said, the cops have raided, raided your house. We'd separated by this stage. Um, and uh, they've taken all the documents. And I was like, oh, my God. First, I was like, why didn't, you, why didn't I destroy them? And then um, 
afterwards, I, uh, I thought, no, your reason you didn't destroy them was because you didn't feel like a criminal and you, mm. uh, you always wanted to keep them be so you could prove what you were saying was true. And had I destroyed them and then, um, you know, it had come out there uh, what I'd done and, and they tried to put me in jail, I, I would have lost the chance to defend myself by saying, no, everything was really wrong in defence. So I kept them to protect myself. Um, and I'm glad I did now because, uh, and uh, eventually um, uh, I decided to come home and face trial. And that was one of the, the, the big reasons to do that because, um, you know, I, I knew that I had the documents there so I could try to prove my case and to say I was obliged to do what I did, not just had the right, but I was obliged as a lawyer and as an officer because uh, the defence force, in my opinion, was not fit for purpose and I had to do something about it. They weren't going to fix themselves. Well, let's reverse it. What if you knew what you knew, felt what you felt and did nothing? Yeah, well, I think why, that's a Why wouldn't that be the crime? I think it is a crime. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, after all the training, and that's what made me sick. There's a lot of training. There's a lot of, if you get higher than me, staff college and they have a thing called Baby General School. They spend millions, and and they could tell you yeah. uh, tell you a story that would bring a tear to your eye about leadership or whatever. But they uh, and it made me sick to think that they actually do the opposite. It's a bit like the pedophile priest thing, in, in that it's particularly bad in that what um, they were saying one thing and doing the absolute opposite, and that turned my stomach. They knew. They knew all about leadership. They knew all about doing the right thing. And yeah, I think I was. I think it would have been, uh, yeah, a, a crime for me not to have done anything. Yeah. So when you um, went to Spain, uh, how did it go, and why did you come back? I had. Um, yeah, I've got two daughters, and one of them was still in primary school, and one of them was was just starting senior school, uh, boarding school, and uh, she. Uh, the oldest one went back to boarding school. Um, quite expensive. My in-laws uh, were paying for it. Um, and uh, the younger one was staying with me in Spain and was going to go to school in Spain. But the, uh, the older one was really missing me. And we were going to stay, I, my wife and I, we all discussed it. We went uh, in, the, in the school holidays, we went on a trip to the Sahara Desert, which was great. We rode camels and we sat out under the stars once night and we discussed it. We had like a family meeting and I said, look, I think I might have to go back and go to jail or at least, you know, have a trial. Uh, and they were like, okay, I was very, everyone's sad, quite a few tears, but we thought, yeah, okay, do it. But we thought we'd have one last white Christmas um, in Europe. We go skiing or something like that. And then, uh, and because at the time, we assumed that uh, there was a good chance that I wouldn't just go to jail, but I'd go to jail for a long time. Mm. So we, we thought, well, you may as well have a couple of months together if that's going to happen. Um, and uh, it might be the last you know, time I see my kids. Uh, then my, but my daughter called me, the, the one that was back in Australia, she called me and she said, I, I need you to come back for father-daughter dance. And, <laughs> And I was like, I sent her this kind of funny, I sent her this long video saying, uh, you know, I, I'd love to, but I'll probably get arrested. And if I do, and if I get arrested, I'll go to jail for a long time. 
point. And I, sh I was, sh I was sure that she'd say, well, like, that doesn't matter. But she was like, I still want you to come back. <laughs> and being the, uh, being the dad that I was, I was like, oh, okay. I thought maybe, maybe I can fly in really quickly and fly out again before they get me. Um, so I came, uh, I flew in on the Saturday. Uh, I didn't tell her I was coming back because I thought I might get arrested at the airport coming in. Um, and, uh, but I got, you know, uh, uh, friends to sort of take her to the dance and, uh, and I was going to surprise her. Uh, they didn't arrest me at the airport, but they clocked me. You know, the guy, sort of, he, when he was talking to me, he's like, oh, haven't I saw it? And he's like, you can see he's pressing the button underneath the, you know, right. yeah, yeah. underneath the thing. And they went through all my bags and they were like, uh, trying to like, you know, be really friendly. And um, I think they probably followed me around that weekend. But to their credit, they didn't arrest me then. And, and, and it would have really broken me if I'd come back to see my daughter and they chucked me straight in the cell. They didn't. Um, I don't know whether they were trying to see, I was going to go and see my Chinese contacts or whatever. <laughs> but, um, they, um, I, then I, and then of course my daughter didn't want me to leave, she hadn't seen me for six months. You know, I've still got video because she was very emotional. Oh, because you, you got to pull this thing off at the dance. You yeah, turned yeah, up I the turned over the dance and, she, okay. and all her friends cried and, oh, okay. with, you know, with, with joy and just, they, it was a very emotional night. Um, and a beautiful night, and then my daughter, of course, just would not stop holding on to me and did not want me to go. Said, look, I've got to get back on the plane. And she's like, well, no, no, you're not going. So we stayed, we just kind of hugged each other for a couple of days. And um, I, I had to sort of delay my flight back. And uh, by this stage, because I knew there was a chance that just by pure, um, uh, the clunky bureaucracy, it might have been quite hard for them to get a warrant together. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, they'd obviously, and, and I think that was a, I think that was a genuine problem. The, the warrant that they eventually arrested me on had only just been stamped, you know, it was, the ink was still wet. And um, that's why I think that they had this unusual charge of theft. Um, you couldn't, they couldn't stop me leaving the country for any, oh. for every single charge, but theft, um, uh, if you stole a tank from the, yeah. you know, a battleship, could be a very serious charge, and um, and so it was it was big enough that they. But you, could have, but you stole white paper. Yeah, that was it was it was yeah. It wasn't even like theft of com, you know of confidential information. It was theft of white paper. You know, <laughs> a couple of reams of um, uh, reflex. <laughs> reflex, yeah. And so, and I don't know whether they were just hoping I'd plead guilty to it. Um, and it would be over and done with, or they just couldn't get anything around quicker. But yeah, it was a bit laughable to begin with. But because I wouldn't plead guilty, um, that uh, they upped the charges. Anyway, they arrested me on the uh, on the way out at the airport. They were waiting for me. There was there was no way I was going to get out. But they, to the AFP were very pleasant. They didn't. Um, I could have got shot because the. Uh, uh, I put my passport in the, you know, they've got these automatic machines, mm. which they yeah. had then, and it usually spins a couple of times and then the green light comes on. Uh, but for me, it just kept spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. And then a guy came out and said, come with me. <laughs> and I was like, ah. and, um, and then the, when the cops didn't know, the New South Wales cops didn't, as far as they knew, I was Osama bin Laden, you know. Oh, and yeah. uh, so uh, it was pretty heavy to begin with. Um, and then uh, the AFP came up and they were like, no, we, we'll, we'll take it from here. And they were very good. I mean, I always say that um, I'm not, uh, I'm not at really anti-establishment. And, and you know, if I've committed a crime, I'm happy to go down. I don't think I have, but the AFP were very pleasant to me and they were, they were very professional. They didn't cuff me, they could have. Um, 
they uh, um, and that would have been you know that would have been tough. And they and they did, didn't even oppose bail. They put me in jail for one night down in Surrey Hills, and um, uh, that was pretty confronting. And um, but they could have made it a lot worse for me had they. Um, you know, kept me in, you know, they could have said, oh, he's a security threat, you know, and they could have just kept me in prison for, mm. a, for a long time. That would have been very tough for me. Mm. Well, I'm glad to hear that because um, we've referred to last night a few times, we were at the same event with um, Julian Assange's father, John Shipton, yeah. and you are a fit, strong military guy. Assange is a nerdy publisher, yet he is treated much more brutally by the system physically you know, yeah, shackled I, I, and all I, I felt, kind of stuff. I, I, last pretty night, awful. I, I did feel quite guilty, yeah. Here I'm out on bail, I'm, I'm giving speeches, I'm showing movies, and he's, he's mm. the, I, I did like 16 hours, I think, in the cells. Um, and I found, yeah, with all my training and, and whatever, I did not find it easy at all. Uh, yeah. it, it, it felt like months. Um, right. he, he has... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, and I think there are things that they don't even want to talk about, but I think he's been quite brutalised and... Um, no, that's tough. Yeah. So let's keep going through this. What, we, what are you now charged with? What are the charges that you've got to answer to? The five charges. So funnily enough, I don't, I don't even know them very well. I don't dwell on them too much. Uh, they relate to speaking to individual journalists. Um, and one is Chris Masters. One is... Um, uh, a guy that worked for the the Herald, and um, one is uh, uh, I think the ABC. A separate, so the separate charges, and they uh, they're quite oldie worldy. They sort of talk about um, giving out the um, sketches of the sort of em embankments or something, you know, emplacements, gun emplacements. Of the, of, of the castle and the moats. Yeah, 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 giving out the secret <laughs> tunnel to the castle. Okay. And, um, and it has uh, uh, this um, proviso in it, and it was not your duty to do so. And, uh, but I like that, and I want to be able to say, um, so it's not simply that you gave documents away. It is like... Um, it wasn't your duty, um, and I want to argue that it was exactly my duty, and uh, I, I look forward to having um, that chance to do that because I'm, I, I want it to be a test case. I don't want. I'm yeah. not, this is what I want to say to the Australian people and your listeners: it's not about me. Uh, it's really about anyone who um, anyone has ever thought this is bullshit in relation to the government and and how. We have lost our way as a country, and, and we don't we we no longer do what's right for Australia. We no longer what's do what's right for the citizens. Like your 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 policy platform and the key ones from your party is so they're so sort of uh, common sense and you know clearly good things. And the idea that they are that that's a sort of a fringe thing and not the mainstream is just yeah, yeah, yeah. it's enough to make your blood boil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that you wouldn't want to help the the the, the good, honest, hard-working Aussie against the banks, yeah. like they're not making enough money, um, <laughs> etc. You know, you wouldn't want to help refugees. You wouldn't want to help uh, Assange, and and it's also because for someone like me, I can see that it's not just it's lies. You know, everything that we think we know about the banks 
or, the, or any of those issues, the oil companies or whatever, it, it's all bullshit, you know. They think nothing of making stuff up and that would, yeah. that would make your, sure. your blood boil. So I'm fighting for everybody that's kind of said, we have lost our way. Um, and I want it to be a test case to say, uh, public servants are meant to work uh, for the good of Australia. They're not just meant to carry out any kind of stunt that the minister wants in order to get the minister re-elected. Now, funnily enough, I think that he, this is how crazy we've got. There's not really that much in the normal, uh, in a normal criminal case, there's a lot of argument about what happened, whether John really did stab Stephen on the yeah, night. Yeah. In my case, it's really not much argument on fact. Even my enemies would say, uh, there's, you know, I, I've said I gave the documents, I was justified. And they don't even, they would say, oh yeah, of course we do political stunts for the minister, but that's what we're meant to do. And they they <laughs> don't even think that that's a problem. They think I'm the idiot. That, yeah. that, 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 that the idea that the, that the defence force is not meant to do, yeah. uh, make shit up because the minister wants them to. Yeah, they think that I didn't get the memo and didn't I know that that's what they do? This is how the world works, mate. Yeah, exactly. Accept didn't, it. Didn't you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't fight the great... And so, it, so that's what it really comes down to is deciding whether I'm crazy or not in, the, in that sense to say, do uh, is does the government work for the government or does the government work for the people of Australia? And yeah. I want that question to be definitively answered. And when you say it's a test case, let's be clear, you you had an alternative to this trial. You could have cut a deal before now and done, gone a different path. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, I, if I'd pled guilty to the theft of, <laughs> the theft of paper, <laughs> for example, I, don't, I certainly wouldn't have got any kind of prison sentence. Um, yeah. uh, also, a big one, because I was uh, discharged with a post-traumatic stress disorder um, and a lot of people tried to push me down, I could have easily said I'm, I'm going to sort of take some sort of a... Uh, say it was all because I've got, um, oh, yeah. you know, uh, uh, imagined it all or something. And, and even people in my family, much to my annoyance, tried to push me down. Not my wife, but extended. And that used to make my blood boil as well. Say, look, I'm, I may have PTSD from fighting my organisation, but I certainly didn't imagine any of this shit. And, um, so they're trying to give you, they're trying to make up excuses for you and you're not, yeah, you're not interested no, in that. I'm not interested, no. yeah. I'm not yep. interested in saying, if I've committed a crime, I'll go to jail. I want to, um, I don't think I have, but I'm certainly not going to say, oh, you know, pity me because I was, you know, I was a bit, I was a bit, you know, crazy, crazy that day. I believe I was right. I have, my views haven't changed one iota uh, in the last 10 years. I still feel as strongly as I've ever done. And I feel um, it's, it's not about me avoiding jail, it's about me satisfying my conscience. Someone's got to stand up. And I don't, when I say that, I don't, I'm not criticising, I'm not judging other people in Australia. Yeah. Nobody has had, uh, I'm just the unlucky guy that was on the spot. Not, not when he, no one else has really been put in the position that I've been put in. But having been put in that position, I have to do what the country would expect me to do and bloody well you know, stride out to the crease and, and give it a good go. Um, so for the trial, who do you want to hold accountable specifically, apart from people understanding how the system works? Do, do you want David Hurley to come to the trial? I want him to give evidence, yeah. Um, he, he, funnily enough, and again, this for, for your viewers, this shows you how ridiculous the system is. I, 
I sent out subpoenas to a number of obvious but not, uh, you know, key people who were absolutely reasonably connected to the case. The Minister of Defence at the time, right. the Chief of the Defence Force at the time, um, the Secretary of Defence at the time, uh, and the government lawyers, you would have thought they'd say, yeah, sure, that's fine. We, they, we've got nothing to hide. We'll come and give evidence. But they fought them tooth and nail. They said, oh, and they, taxpayer money was used to stop these people giving evidence. Like, what have wow. they got to hide? Yeah, and why yeah, would yeah. the taxpayers have to pay? Uh, it's this weird thing that happens in Australia at the moment where team government absolutely goes against, you know, team whistleblower. There's not even, this is before they've even looked at the facts of my case. They just assume that the people at the top are good, they're right, and we will use all the taxpayer monies to, to defend them. Um, and the person who's actually saying, we need to do things for the benefit of Australia, they are necessarily wrong, and they're gonna, you know, we're gonna crush them. Now that's just so topsy-turvy. And what, what have they got to fear by turning up and telling their story? I have mm. to turn up and tell my story. And um, Hurley had the excuse to say, oh, I'm Governor General, I, I, I can't be subpoenaed, which is true. But it's kind of a cop-out to say, well, he can still, he can turn up voluntarily. Um, and uh, again, he, he might be Governor General now, but he was the Chief of Defence Force at the time. And I think most average Australians would say, uh, you have a bit of a duty to turn up and answer questions. You know, maybe he'll exonerate himself. Maybe he'll look good, but don't just t take the cowardly mm. option and say, I'm not going to come. And this is what I've always wanted because this is why I wanted a trial because when you're trying to fight one of these big organisations, you, you hit an avalanche of PR people uh, who are in the, uh, the, the major media outlets uh, are, are very slanted towards the government. They might give you a little bit of a run, but not that much. Um, and you can be smeared and it's very hard. Uh, they don't answer, they don't have the, they don't have the uh, obligation to answer straight questions. Yep. And um, yet in a courtroom, everything's different. There's no yes. spin doctor in a courtroom. Yes. Um, they can be put on the spot and you can have that, you know, that hard question, did you know or didn't you know? And then when they say, oh, I didn't know, and then you say, well, what about, why did you do this? And then and, and you know, they look more and more ridiculous. You can't do that outside of a courtroom. And it's a high-risk strategy. And even though I'm the defendant, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I get, you know, we get to ask them questions. And I think <coughs> I'm effectively putting them on trial. And as far as I could see, it was the only way I could do it. So I want that trial. Now, the difficulty, though, is there's a good chance this trial is effectively going to be secret. Um, how can they arrange, how can they make sure it stays secret? Well, they, they will, the, the cover-all that everyone's been abusing for the past 20 years is to say matters of national security are being discussed. And we, we talked about it last night, that Greg Barnes was talking about it. it it's, it's disgusting that under our system, uh, and the hysteria after 9-11, uh, the prosecution can have evidence that the, that the defendant's not even allowed to see. Yeah. And can show it to the judge. And this kind of might have seemed like a good idea at the time after 9-11. But the problem is um, we cannot trust our security services anymore. 
that that's not totally made up. That, that yeah. piece of paper that goes under the judge's yeah. nose could be a complete piece yeah. of bullshit. Um, and we need to, uh, uh, the idea that the defence don't get to see it. So there'll be things like that, they'll be saying, they, they could even have evidence against me, which we don't get to see. Probably not in my case, but uh, as they say, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And uh, I want, while it's not totally necessary for me to have an open trial, I've got faith in the judiciary. I mean, a close, uh, yeah, an open trial. I, I've got faith in the judiciary. I think I've got a pretty good judge. I'm a very good judge. And um, I, uh, if, if, of course, you have to have legal argument of whether it's going to be open or closed. And I'm not. It's been going on for ten years. I'm not interested in, in running that. Um, I've got two teenage children who are rapidly under pressure. I'm not. I can't afford to run that argument forever. And, yeah. and if we have to. And the government's always got the, you know, the winning hand in that regard. They've got limitless, limitless. money to spend on this. Yep. So I don't know how much is going to be closed and how much is going to be open. Um, uh, but we will, it's ridiculous to say, you know, that there is any genuine questions of national security for any of the, any of the major facts. Like, did they know about the war crimes? Were they trying to cover it up? Do we obey the law? Um, do we put out smoke screens? Do we put out false statements? Um, none of that, you know, none of that is anything to do with national security, and uh, it's it's national, it's crimes, yep. it's national embarrassment, um, and uh, but uh, which is what na the national security smoke screen is good for covering up, isn't it? Yeah, of course, national embarrassment. National embarrassment. Um, you you expected the raid on your place, but. Your leak also led to the raid, the AFP raid on the ABC. Did that shock you when that happened? It was a real turning point in the case. Uh, and when I eventually write my book, it's one of the watershed moments. Um, there wasn't much interest in me before that. Uh, right. It was just the theft of the pieces of paper. And I remember exactly where I was. Um, I was driving back down to Canberra for one of a court appearance or something. and. Uh, Christopher Nouse from the newspaper reporter called me and said, you understand, um, the ABC's been raided uh, and um, uh, an Annika Smithhurst underwear drawer has been raided. And, uh, and after that, the phone never stopped ring ringing. Yeah, it was yeah, interesting. Yeah. Everything changed. And it was kind of funny because I, I don't, it's a mystery and some, you'd have to find some really, uh, you know, maybe use, you know, some in, intrepid reporter with their thing on the poster really put that one together. I believe it was an, uh, an overreach by Dutton and Morrison. Again, they've done polling. Because um, I think when they first asked Morrison about it, he was like, oh, I'd, I've got no, no apologies for the AFP, you know, enforcing the law. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they'd already raided my house. They already had all the documents. Yeah. And it was, and the, the stuff was already online. So it wasn't clear what they were actually looking for, if anything. And it may have just been a show of force to mm. sort of say, and in some ways it worked because I've heard anecdotally that a lot of people who were going to do public interest stories or whistleblowers got scared after that. And a lot of stories got dropped and people ran for cover. And so maybe it worked in some, but it did, I was so proud that a couple of months later, both the, I've never seen this before or since, but both the Australian and the Sydney Morning Herald ran the, the same uh, cover, both covers, with all blacked out saying, you know, you, you're right to know. 
and the yeah. ABCs yeah. went behind. That was beautiful. That was a, I was very proud to be Australian on that day. Um, they got behind it. It was a big reaction. Yeah, to say this is bullshit. I mean, you know, uh, we need to be able, the people need to know what is going on in our name and there are limits to, you know, <laughs> what well, that, they can do. And that said, like that, that was a good uh, symbolic sign, but nevertheless, it has had a chilling effect. You just mentioned um, that one. I'll give this other one I wanted to mention because at the end of that year, 2019, I was involved in a Senate hearing and Senator Rex Patrick, on an unrelated matter, it was about a hearing into the government's bill to ban cash. Um, he was talking about the Orwellian aspects of that and he made mention of the Annika Smithhurst ABC raids and he, and he, po he pointed out that after those raids, every, every journalist contact on his phone switched to Signal, which is the mm. encrypted app. Yeah. Because, and he said everyone, like all the journalists in Canberra suddenly felt they had to hide their activities from being able to be spied on by the government. And that's how they operate now. But what's interesting to me is, I mean, this is a police state we're in. Yet you actually, despite that reaction to you, which was good, etc., the media don't generally report it that way. It's almost been accepted now. No, that's why I was so happy about it. But that's right. Um, uh, yeah, the, you, you, this is the... The, and hopefully my case will change this. This is a game I feel yeah. like I'm fighting for everybody. But yeah, you. the reality is, uh, if you're a whistleblower, even if it was the most worthy thing, like you knew that there was a nuclear waste yeah. um, you know, being dumped in Warragamma Dam, you wouldn't necessarily go to get a good run from the journalists. You, know, no. you would not necessarily. You, you, it's, 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 it's a lottery. They might paint you as a complete lunatic. You don't know whether um, uh, you, you can't. I, I grew up relatively idealistic, um, and but you, there's no guarantee the, the media will back you. Yeah. Uh, they might, but they might not, and that's interesting. And um, whistleblowers almost need their own sort of PR company, and maybe that's what the protection agency. Will well, help you're in a pantheon now, David, of whistleblowers. In Australia, we, I asked this question of Greg Barnes last night. Was it my perception or is it truly much worse? Now, in the last two decades, you've got you, Witness K, Witness J, Bernard Caleri, Richard Boyle, the ATO whistleblower. Of course, Julian Assange is the big one. These are people that have heard all your lives have been completely upended for doing the right thing and exposing the right thing. Yet you're not cause celebrities on the front page every day. You're, just, oh, yeah. you're reported when something comes up. But we've just we're exposed to accept this that this is normal. Oh, these yes. When you when everyone when when you when the subject comes up, what do they blow the whistle on? Oh yeah, that was bad. It is good we know that. What's going to happen to them? Fifty years, one hundred and fifty years for Richard Boyle. Don't know who Witness K was, right? I mean, this is oh, it's, it, why know, isn't the media crusading on this every day? It's quite um. It's very topsy-turvy world, that's right. In the meantime, mm. we're giving out orders of Australia to oil company executives for yeah, fantastic yeah. Uh, profits that they've made and donations to the political party. Um, and uh, it is, uh, yeah, you can't let it get you down, though. You've got to say, we are going to win uh, eventually. That's one of the things I've been extremely lucky about in that I've got uh, Bernard and, uh, and Kay uh, and... Because you can easily be painted, um, and even without doing, you know, you you are an outlier as a whistleblower, and um, the government loves to be able to just say, oh, they were a crazy person, or 
or even if you get up on your particular thing, they just say, oh, that was a one-off, they'll find a scapegoat, yeah. they'll yeah. throw, you know. This is what Hurley's going to get a, a, a bad lesson in politics eventually. If it gets too hot for the government, they yeah. will throw him under the glass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and just say, oh, whew, we didn't know, he was a terrible person. And um, that's the way they work, and uh, that's if you get too far. But they, um, the fact that there's five of us uh, really helps because people they can't just write it off as one bad apple, one crazy person, beginning to see this it's is systemic. What, yeah, well, I was I wasn't complaining about war crimes particularly, but to complain that the defence force is is a basket case. And it's not just the defence force. All government departments would have exactly the same problems in that they work, they window dress, they work to make the minister look good. They don't work to actually do their job, you know, protect the country or whatever. And the ATO is the same. Um, ACES, I mean, I was quite surprised by that. It's funny, and I saw all these people before. I've, I've met them all now. But before, uh, like the rest of Australia, I met them on TV, you know, met the inverted commas or read about them. But I instantly knew that I would have something in common with them in that you could tell that there was more to their story than yeah, went yeah. on. Yeah, and it yeah. was the same thing. When I heard about Jeff Morris, the banking whistleblower, yeah. um, I never thought they'd get a Royal Commission up, but I was just like, he is ex saying exactly yeah. what I said. Yeah, and he wasn't talking about the... Um, um, you know, the financial planners at the bottom, he was saying the people, you know, criminal activity was encouraged by the chairman of the board. Yeah. And that was, I thought, wow, this guy's speaking my language. Um, and boy, what I could see was the same. And that's what I, that's why we need to band together. As we discussed before, you know, wars are won by alliances because we're all basically saying the same thing. We know, we, as a nation, we have lost our way in relation to ethics um, and the law. And it's the people at the top of our uh, organisations and, and uh, institutions so often that are the bad examples, not so much people down the bottom. Well, before we uh, wrap up, let's move on to geopolitics now because I wanted to move the conversation to here. I follow you avidly on uh, Twitter. Um, you're, you're very active in in using the platforms you have to question these dominant narratives, especially the ones against China and Russia. Um, so how, I've asked you this question from the other direction. I want to ask you this, this way now. How, was, um, how much was it your own experience that led you to actually question the big picture? Yeah, I knew... Uh, I knew from Afghanistan, I knew that what the, the picture that we painted of, of, of these sort of um, uh, brainwashed Islamic uh, terrorists um, was, was wrong. And, I, and also I could see, as a professional soldier, I could see we were, uh, by believing our own propaganda, we were ending up fighting a phantom that didn't even exist. You yeah. know? We were saying, oh, the only people that... that um, uh, well, the Americans had a, a funny uh, uh, lesson, hard lesson, which they learned after suicide bombing went through the roof after two, about 2006, 2010. Uh, and they were like, How, why has this happened, you know? There must be some sort of like brainwashing center in Pakistan, and they got someone from MIT to come over and 
professor, non-military. It's always, it's always, it's always like they make it up. It's like the man who stare at goats, or whatever. And he looked yeah. into it, and of course they didn't want to know his findings because it was again, it was an unpalatable truth they didn't want to know. They said, since you've invaded Iraq, you know, people from around the Muslim world are queuing up to become suicide bombers because they can see you are just so full of bullshit. You are so, you know, you are such, a, you are so arrogant in your in the way that you treat the world as just a plaything to do whatever you want. And it's not because people are brainwashed, but they just have to look at the the news and see uh, see the truth of what uh, about America, and they and they want to do something about it. Yeah. Uh, but it, that was just too it was just too uh, an awful conclusion. I think the report got shelved. I think actually the guy who wrote the report might have become a whistleblower <laughs> <laughs> because it was an inconvenient truth, and they didn't want to they didn't want to know about it. Yeah, and yeah. Um, they wanted something uh, again to do, you know everything is about their propaganda and they wanted something to confirm um, that you know, these were these evil brainwashed people that hate us for our freedoms when actually yeah, they yeah. were normal people who hated, us, hated them for their lives. So that was, the, your experience was the war on terror. The last few years, the big issue for Australia has been China, the China threat. How, yeah. do, you, how do you see that? Yeah, look, it, it's a hard one because... Uh, there's been so much propaganda for so long. You've got to be you've got to be careful about talking about it because people just don't want to believe it. But it, it is I'm with you on that. It's very we have been talked into hating China. We've been talked into hysteria about that China is somehow going to behind everything and it's going to invade us, and in the same way that we did with the Soviet Union in yeah. the 50s. And um, Knowing what I know about the way we were, uh, it goes it, it really. I just, I'm very focused on domestic politics. It goes back, um, unfortunately. You know, you, you would think people are not so cynical that they would do anything just to win an election. But my experience is that that's not the case. That they yeah. would they legalize pedophilia if they thought it was going to, you know, fucking win them the election. They, there is no there, such there thing. There would be a caucus. Liberal Party caucus room meeting on that, yes, for yeah. sure. There is, there is no, there is no issue which is off the table if <laughs> no, the polling, sure. if the polling says <laughs> it's that's a the path to power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no issue off the um, and the th enemies. This is behind the assumption. Enemies win elections. Yeah, we yeah. want uh, you want enemies. America can only survive with enemies. There has to be uh, has to be someone who hates us for our freedoms. That's how you sell arms. That's how you sell tanks. Yeah. That's how you win elections. And anyone who's gone to war, John Howard or uh, George W. Bush and even Obama, who dropped more bombs than anybody, they get reelected by appearing presidential. I mean, strong. Ironically enough, Trump. This is one of the you know the great ironies. Trump, who everybody hates, because he didn't start any new wars. Um, uh, was one of, in many ways was one of the better presidents, but because he didn't start a war, uh, even though he did lots of other stupid things. But um, uh, and that's a big deal. I mean, that's something which is you can be proud of because everyone else, uh, Hillary Clinton probably would have blown up the whole world um, in order to make herself more popular. They, you know, they are 
they are very, uh, they will, the sort of people that seem to get, I used to think, well, if someone's rich or someone's prime minister, they, uh, they, they must have something going for them. The older I get, I tend to believe, and apparently this is borne out by academic research, uh, the CEOs are often pathological people and, and, and you know, psychopaths and that's how they get ahead and, they, and they're very good liars and they just, you know, run people down and divide and rule and, uh, and I think a lot of politicians are the same. But yeah, they will make, they will send us to war in order to win an election. And the, the China serves much more of an important political purpose by being an enemy that we have to fight, um, that will win. If we said, oh, uh, and it didn't make any, it was, it, it was so ridiculous that a couple of years ago, only about four, they were our biggest trading partner. Uh, Chinese naval ships were in Sydney Harbour, yeah. 200 metres off Garden Island, waving, yeah. you know. Like, what was that about? How come they were there if they were the enemy? And, um, and now, because of, you know, I think because of the Americans, because they told us to, because the Americans and the Chinese are, you know, um, economic uh, rivals, um, that we, we have been talked into this, oh my God, they're really evil, um, it, you know, oh, they're killing people, they have all these concentration camps. Now, we don't know if any of that is true. Uh, and it doesn't mean it isn't true, but you've got to be very wary. The, the further away a place is, yeah. Yeah. The more likely it is to be made up, you know. I, um, and I would be your your viewers obviously know all this stuff, but we we want to go to war with China, or the Americans do. I mean that that so it's rather than it's it's a bit like I used to love magic tricks when I was a kid, and I still like them. But the way to, most of magic or a lot of magic tricks are. Uh, the way they get away with it is it's everything is reverse engineered. You pretend you, you, you know, you're, you're pulling something, but yeah, it's already there. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. the thing about the whole China thing is that we, um, the narrative is we have to go to war against them because they're killing Uyghurs and also they're going you know, to take over Taiwan. But actually it's the other way around. We want to go to war against China, so therefore we are going to make up stuff which can justify it. Uh, we are a, a bit like Ukraine. We want to go to war against Russia. We want to destabilize them a bit like Afghanistan. Yeah. Therefore, we will pressure, pressure, pressure them in relation to Ukraine. We will, you know, do all those things that we know where we can make this pressure point where they will do something. They'll be forced into a corner. They're going to do something. And then we can go, oh, my God, we have to go to war against Russia. But we have created the situation because war is good. Uh, for yep. America, and so I believe that's with China. It's not, um, we are, actually, the Americans is surrounding China. It's not China, and every time I see it in the newspapers, oh, China's expansion, isn't it? <laughs> it's actually, but, but they've done such a good job, and as I said, it's uh, hard. Like, I meet perfectly rational, uh, nice people, friends of mine, and they'd say things like, oh, I went to Samoa last week, or whatever, and I go, well, oh, that was good, and they'd say, Oh, it's terrible. The Chinese like built a wharf. It's this big wharf, and I'm like, well, it's just a wharf. Is that a bad thing? Well, it could become a, you know, it could become a naval, uh, you know, it could, you know, you, yeah. eventually. And I'm like, well, the Americans have actual naval bases <laughs> in Australia, and yet, why is the, you know, why the people yeah. don't see it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that's kind of a bit nuts. But the, and this is one thing. 
as I said, I like to put, you know, I like to laugh at, at, the, at the pink and white security paper thing, but the one thing that the, the Americans have done very well is successful demonising of China and Putin over the last 20 years. As I said, the, the state yeah. of the world is now is that they could unilaterally carpet bomb Russia with nuclear bombs and there wouldn't be any outcry. They would say, oh, well done, you've saved us from Hitler. Yeah. And that is, that's, that's the state of, of, of play. And China's the same. They yep. can pretty much go to war unilaterally against China now because people um, uh, are convinced that they are this kind of baby-eating race and, they're, and they're, they're, out, they're out to get us. And no one... Um, and it's particularly sad for me, I think, because it's like the farmers... A lot of people have suffered from this. A lot of Australians have And it just shows you how ridiculous our... Yeah policy is where in order to make you know an idiot like Pompeo or Biden happy we have really screwed over Australian farmers Australian winemakers Australia uh, for what to make the Americans happy I mean it's uh, what what about putting Australia's interests first you know that's what I want to say but when you demonized them so well in the population to the point when last year or the year before the ABC four corners showed the industry suffering from the trade sanctions and this lobster grower in um, Tassie who used to send plane loads of lobsters to China and he was reduced to taking a styrofoam box to his local school fate to sell them there and he's, uh, he's talking in the interview and saying this is you know terrible but at least we're standing up for our values. <laughs> anyway, we could talk about that all day. We won't, we're, we really are... Um, Running out of time. Let's let's um, finish on this because I was struck by you talk. You, you you raised this a few times last night, so this might surprise people. How do you feel about the future in terms of your case and this this broader picture? Yeah, I've always come at, at, from a soldier's point of view, and I um, uh, this is one of the clashes that I have uh, with activists. Um, and we've, did, you know, and you would probably have the same as well. I'm not from an activist background, and, and I, uh, uh, I see it as it's kind of World War Two. It's a battle, and I believe we're going to win. And I, I, I can't, I can't stomach activists who kind of leave friends and have lunch and say, "Oh, it's really bad. This is, you know, it was bad." But then we, we have to. Can't just, you can't just complain about something. Yeah. You've got to, you know, win. And I reckon we're going to win. I think. What's going to happen? I'm going to win my case. Boyle or Boyle might win his case first. Um, and because I'm relatively establishment, relatively uh, um, someone, and you know, talking about pretty major things like is our chief of defence force a liar who yeah. just, you know, did did soldiers take people out the back and blow their heads off um, uh, and get medals for it? I mean, that's pretty normal stuff. It's hard to paint me as some sort of like. Yeah, crazy hippie who wants to bring the end of civilization now. Yeah, and if yeah. I can win my case um, and then get a bit of uh, momentum behind me, I can start being a spokesman for Julian Assange and saying he's not what you think he is. And yes, I understand he had a funny haircut, and he's you know he's actually turns out he's 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 um, he's got some unusual personality traits, um, <laughs> but he's not. Um, he is a good person, and all he was revealing war crimes and um, or WikiLeaks was things that were really bad by the Americans. No, no action has been taken against the people 
who lied about thousands of deaths and you know, all that double dealing. Yeah. And we need to do something about those major things before we put him in jail. Anyway, to advocate on his behalf, and I think he will eventually get out. Um, and uh, I do believe it's kind of the, uh, the dawning of a new era. It's going to be quite tight, uh, but we, I reckon we can, with people like yourself, we are actually going to win. It might take a couple more years, but it'll be step by step that we will get up and people will say, hang on, um, our governments, uh, you know, uh, we just make shit up and we need to stop just making shit up. And we, when we're going to get there, in the same way that we won the Second World War by landing in Normandy and going in the next level, landing in, in, in Italy, going up to the next town and, and bombing and, you know, it, bit by bit, not going to happen overnight, but we make one victory run into the next. Well, David, thank you very much for joining us today on Citizens Insight. Um, it's been a long conversation, but a very enlightening one. Um, it's given, I mean, given you're going to be in a trial in the next, within a few weeks, um, I, I encourage the viewers to refer back to this discussion because I think it will be the best insight they'll have into it. So thanks for being so um, open with us. And I'll also say to the viewers, um, this is a big deal. As you can see from what David said, he's fighting this um, on behalf of all of us. It would change the system. So we're going to put a link below to your GoFundMe page for his legal fighting fund, which um, he's going to need all the help he can get. So please support David in that regard. And yeah, let's win this battle. Um, win this get behind battle. David and then let's keep winning him. Thanks very much. Thank you so much.